You're listening to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, home of the two-hour deep dive interview with gold, platinum, and multi-platinum bands, including Stained, Blue Rodeo, The Arkells, Finger Eleven, Big Wreck, Moist, Bedouin Soundclash, I Mother Earth, Ill Scarlet, Neverending White Lights, Thornley, and many more. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast as well as share, comment, and like. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He's achieved a level of mastery as the guitarist, the principal songwriter, and one of the founding members of the Canadian Southern rock band, the Cooper Brothers, whose songs have charted multiple times on the Billboard Hot 100. So welcome to the podcast, Dick Cooper. Dick, how are you and how good did it feel to play Blues Fest last summer in front of a hometown crowd? Oh, um, first off, hi, Joel. <laughs> How you doing? Um, uh, yeah, Blues Fest was cool. Um, we, we, we didn't do the Cooper Brothers thing. We, we more or less did that Southern rock tribute thing that we do once in a while. Um, we hadn't played Blues Fest in about, I don't know, 10 years or something. So it was cool to be back. Um, uh, and that the, the Southern rock tribute thing is, is just so much fun for us it's just there's i don't know for some reason it just takes all the pressure off you know we do skinner and we do allman brothers and marshall tucker and the outlaws and all that stuff and it's just it's it's just a lot of fun and we we had a couple of guests we had um graham greer from uh barstool prophets uh he got up with us and um somebody you know um uh, ricky Paquette, um who right after that he got into the sheepdogs man it was so funny it was like two weeks later so it was kind of cool that was good news we were we were all happy for him so i i was a i i recently moved from uh toronto back to my hometown of ottawa about two years ago just during the pandemic to be closer to family and uh at that blues fest, I was there every single day and uh, I was able to make it out. You guys were in a nice big tent. You had a great crowd there for yeah. you. And you mentioned that the last time you played blues fest was about 10 years before that. Was that the massive James Taylor show where yeah. there was like 25,000 yeah. people? What was that like? Well, more than that. <laughs> it was, you couldn't, we were on the big stage and you couldn't see the lawn. It was just like it literally, there was like 30,000 people. Yeah. And I mean, we were, I've always been a huge James Taylor fan and, and, you know, sometimes you can play with these guys and they turn out to be not so nice. I mean, he was just a sweetheart. He was, uh, my brother's into vintage cars. So he pulls up backstage and James Taylor comes out of his uh, trailer. He goes, whose car is this man? I go, well, it's my brother. He goes, ah, oh, are you guys are the opening act? Oh, great. And he was like our pal for the rest of the day. He hung out for our sound check and yeah, just a, just a lovely, lovely guy, you know? That's amazing. I, I caught uh, James Taylor in Toronto. So I'm a big James Taylor fan. And uh, he he was awesome. His songs are great, great performer. And one thing that really stood out, he has a sense of humor, obviously. And uh, at one point, the crowd, someone just kept yelling after every song. They wanted a specific song for him to play. So at one point, he addresses it. So he like stops the band. He goes, uh, sir, okay, I'm going to check if your song is coming up on the set list. And he reaches down and he picks up like a, a massive billboard size. Like it was an inside <laughs> joke, I guess. So he had a massive billboard this big and you see him look down the list and he goes, oh, yeah, your song's coming up so you can stop shouting for it. And everyone laughs. So it was like a, a great moment that, that, you know, sticks with you. It would take him a while to get through his hits, you know, <laughs> yeah. so many. Absolutely. Is there anything that you have to do 
differently when you play to a crowd that's 25,000, 40,000 people than if you were playing in a small venue? Do you have to change the way you talk to the crowd or your movements or the the order of the songs in your set list? Uh, no, not really. Y you know, um, when I was teaching um, songwriting, uh, and I, I would, I'd play something for the kids in the class or try to demonstrate some principle or whatever it was. You know, I would be more nervous there in front of like 20 kids, 25 kids than I would be in front of 25,000. I don't know what that is. And I would have people in my class like uh, Kelly Lee Evans come into my class or J.W. Jones would come into my class and they'd say the same thing. They go, isn't it odd how you would get more nervous? Because I, I think it's because they're right there. You know, they're like two feet away from you as opposed to uh, we, 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 we did one gig in front of like. 60,000 people and it was kind of surreal it was like you were looking at this painting you know <laughs> it's like they didn't even they didn't even you didn't register as people you know so yeah it, it, I, we never changed the set or anything like that you know that that's exactly what i was going to ask is if it the crowd is so big that it seems like just one entity instead of yeah, that yeah. many people and you're that's like exactly, oh, i could play to one entity no that's problem. exactly it it's almost like you're not even nervous <laughs> You you mentioned two Ottawa legends, so Kelly Lee Evans, a jazz legend, J.W. Jones, a blues legend in Ottawa. Uh, I actually have a little history with both of them. So way back yeah. in the day, I was so young. Uh, I don't know, I was maybe 12 to 14 years old, and I volunteered at uh, Ottawa either Folk Fest or Jazz Fest, one of the festivals in Ottawa, I volunteered and I ended up uh, being the merchandise person selling CDs for Kelly Lee Evans. So that's the first time I met her. And oh, wow. then for Christmas this year, I brought my parents to the to an Ottawa Senators game and Kelly Lee Evans did the uh, Canadian anthem. So I messaged her. It had been, you know, a decade, couple decades since I had seen her. So we reconnected. And then J.W. Jones, uh, my dad is a massive fan and uh, he's actually going to come on the podcast in a few months when the new album comes out and and you have uh, a little history with the album that's coming out so we'll dive into that as well uh, i i gotta tell you um i am just a huge kelly lee evans fan man. and she sang on one of my songs on on one of our records and it was just like oh my god it was she's she's an amazing person and she's an amazing artist and i, I think she's a world-class artist you know i i think she should be recognized everywhere she's just amazing so i i like to start these interviews by sharing with our listeners how i know the guests and it shows the importance of of networking of building community of fostering relationships so in our case uh the cooper brothers became known to me because of my dad. My dad is actually a massive blues fan, a massive rock fan, and he's been singing your praises for years. So uh, the Cooper brothers <laughs> are a part of my consciousness because of my dad. So when we scheduled this interview, I reached out to my dad. I said, dad, give me everything you got on the Cooper brothers. Help me out here. And what he did is he actually sent me a quote. So I'm just going to read this quote from my dad. So my dad has never provided a quote in the three-year history of the podcast, but he had to do it for the Cooper brothers. So uh, Dennis Martin says, well, you can tell them that it's thanks to bands like theirs that after all these years, I still believe that those of us who came of age in the 70s were blessed with the best music this planet has ever heard. That being said, when I see the caliber of musicians that line up to join them in their band these days, like Ottawa's Jeff Rogers, I know that the dream never dies. You see what my dad did there? Uh, <laughs> they are still putting out the best music on the planet. Rock on, fellas. So that's from Dennis Martin. Oh, uh, maybe the most important you. quote of your career. Who knows? Thank so. you. 
<laughs> That's and, lovely. And then to not have my dad outdo me right away on this interview, I reached out to Jeff Rogers and I have some kind words from him. So member, member of the Cooper brothers, as well as the commotions who are amazing. I saw them in uh, some somewhere Perth. I saw them in Perth last summer. Uh, so Jeff Rogers says, Dick Cooper is a brilliant writer with ideas for days. I'm very lucky to have the opportunity to write and work with him regularly. And when you get him going, he's good for a hilarious, biting, sarcastic comment or two. So that's from Jeff Rogers. <laughs> yeah, Jeff's like the son I never wanted. Um, <laughs> he's been playing with my brother and I for like 10 years. And I, I really kind of kind of brings out the paternal in me, you know, because he's he was he's younger and but like massive talent, massive talent. You know that we got an album coming out, eh? Uh, that Jeff and I worked on together. It's going to be coming out later this year. He is, he's one to watch for sure, man. He's, he's terrific. So the, the final thing I'll say about how we ended up here today, and then we'll dive into your entire uh, history, your career, your discography. Right. Uh, the last thing I'll say is, uh, so again, I mentioned I moved back from Toronto to Ottawa a couple of years ago. I'm a goalie when it comes to hockey. Uh, so I get, I start getting calls to play for all these hockey teams. So a couple of years ago, I show up at the arena and when one of the players found out that my history is in the music industry, that I have a podcast and I, I interview these amazing musicians, uh, that, that hockey player said, Hey, there's someone else on the team that is really involved in the music industry. You should talk to him. So that's how I met Steve St. Jean. And he's been singing the praises of the Cooper brothers every week for two years. So he is a <laughs> lifelong champion for you guys. And that's how we ended up here today. So shout out, shout out to uh, Steve. Well, I give him a shout out too. Steve's Steve's been uh, a pal of uh, my brother and mine for forever, and we when we go on the road, he's more or less our our road manager and stuff like that. And um, I don't know if you know, he's got a background in like kickboxing and stuff, and he's 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 like he's kind of a formidable present, you know. So I get really tough when I'm around Steve because I know I got major backup right there. So yeah. So all those times that he scores on me uh, playing hockey, and I feel like I just want to give yeah, him one. No. I should refrain. Well, that would that would not be. I'm also <laughs> five five, so just his physical presence alone without the kickboxing. Well, I've got you by about a half an inch, so yeah, I, I can feel your pain. <laughs> there you go. So people look at you today, and they see a, a successful musician, successful songwriter, teacher, into video games, movies, books they're seeing a product that's been in development. They're not seeing like you were not born with all this talent. This was a dream. This was hard work. This took a lifetime of dedication. So let's go back all the way to the beginning. Where did this love of music come from? And do you have a earliest musical memory that jumps out at you? Um, it, it came from my dad, for sure. My dad actually was a songwriter. Uh, he he um, probably a little known fact. So the, the songwriting DNA in me has has always been strong he he took a shot at uh, doing it professionally he moved down to new york uh, for a while and he, he pitched songs and and he got burnt pretty badly so the irony here is there was this constant push and pull like there was always music around the house and he encouraged it with my brother and i and then was horrified when we wanted to do it professionally. Do you know what I mean? I think it was cool that he, he thought it was cool if we did it like as a hobby. But then when we actually did it professionally, he was so worried because, you know, the sharks swim in those waters. So he he had experienced it firsthand. So he was 
he was very trepidatious about all that, you know. Yeah, the music industry is not the most loving and and kind uh, of industries. Uh-huh. Do you uh-huh. do you think your dad lived vicariously through you uh, as you went on to have success? Yeah, um, it, yeah, he did. I mean, he he was certainly proud of us, but. Um, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. So, so one time it was that we had, this was just after the Cooper brothers had hit with our first album. And, um, um, the, uh, we had this gig coming up on, on March 17th. It was a local gig and they asked us if we would play some, a couple of Irish songs. So my brother and I, and a couple of the guys in the band go over to my dad's and my dad shows us how to play. So I play the banjo and my brother's playing, one of the guys playing mandolin. We sing these Irish songs. And, um, and then we, when we did the gig, I think we did one Irish song just for the people. So anyway, somebody dropped by my dad's place and said, oh my God, my dad's, your dad's so proud of you. He was playing me something. And I said, oh, he's playing you, was he playing you the new album? And they said, no, he's playing these Irish songs that you guys were singing. <laughs> so he was, in some ways, you know what I mean? There was the, like, he was as proud of us as being the guys in the kitchen as he was of us. I don't think he understood the, the rest of it. You know, I don't think he got, it took him a while to understand that. Oh, oh, they're going on to her. Oh, okay. People like them in the United States. Oh, like at the first, he didn't really grasp it, you know? And then, then he was very, very supportive after that. So it was my mom, you know. So you mentioned playing banjo as a guitarist. Is it is it fairly simple as a guitarist if you know how to play guitar? Is it fairly simple to pick up a banjo and you should be decent, or is it like completely different and and no, that's not a given? No, that's I I I I've fiddled with a lot of stringed instruments. <laughs> I find them all very difficult to play, including the guitar. Thank you. <laughs> So, so you, you started as a music lover, your dad is a musician, you probably had music playing around the house. How did you, how did you gravitate towards actually playing the guitar instead of just taking in music? A lot of it's my brother. See, I, I was, I was pretty academic as a kid and I, you know, like I, I always thought, I kind of thought like what my dad was telling us that the music would be a hobby it was never like that with my brother. My brother was like, he wanted to be a rock star, you know? So it was always my brother bugging me to, 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 to be in a band and to, and to do stuff together. So, I mean, I, I wound up um, kind of rejecting it and going into university. And uh, I mean, I went, I got a degree and I was in a, I was in a master's program and the whole time my brother's telling me to quit and start a band with him. So I eventually got thrown into the master's program because I kept missing classes because I was playing in all these bands with my brother. Right. So like I say, there was like, I, I, it wasn't until I actually got kind of thrown out of university. And then I went on the road with my brother that, that I actually started playing professionally because I always thought I was going to be, I don't know. I didn't know what I was going to be. I really wanted to be a writer or I, I knew I wanted to be in some creative element, but I wasn't quite, I didn't think it was going to be music. I, I wonder if you'd consider your brother a good influence or a bad influence for, for that. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> it depends on the day, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Which guitarists were your biggest influences growing up when you were playing guitar? You see, I'm not really a guitar guy. 
You know, I mean, I, I'm more a songwriter. I always have been a songwriter. So, um, um, which I, songwriters I, then would you, would you say? Yeah. So like the guitar, I, and my thinking Joel is, is, was that I can always hire a guitar player, but I couldn't hire a, a songwriter, you know? And so even, even in our early bands, when we were in our teens, when I was like in college and, and in university and we would play weekend bands, um, even at like 16, 17, I was trying to write songs. You know, they're pretty crappy, but they, they, I was I was conscious of the fact that I thought that would set us apart if we had our own material. So that was one of the first things we did when we when we started uh, the Cooper Brothers was right away. It was it was to 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 work on on that part of it, you know. But it, I mean, the, the songwriters I dug, I mean, obviously, um, with my vintage, you're talking about the British invasion and, and, you know, then eventually I got into people like uh, Jackson Brown and, and people like that. Um, certainly big influence was Poco and uh, groups like that. So um, it, it, over time, you, you, there's different people that influence you, you know, but in the early days, uh, my whole generation, it was, it was British invasion. It was the Beatles for sure. You know, And as a kid, was there anything you wanted to be when you grew up before you figured out you wanted to be a musician? Any childhood yeah. dreams? Yeah. I, I mean, I thought uh, I, I was really, I really leaned towards uh, literature, you know? I mean, I was a big reader as a kid. I'm well go over there and you'll see books and there's books. And that, that, so nothing has changed. So um my my heroes in life are as much literary as as musical you know and so i i kind of i kind of come at uh, i kind maybe come at the music business from a little bit of a different angle you know than some folks so because i'm a big book nerd our listeners we have some voracious readers as listeners do you have any all-time favorite books can you name one two or three anything that comes to mind that just all-time favorite books wow i mean um or favorite I mean, I, writers well yeah i mean i i am a big fan of david foster wallace uh but but i go back to all the the i'm big fan of uh, uh hemingway and fitzgerald that that whole era but uh i mean i read everything i i and you know i teach it so um i i just i really preach even to the hardcore i don't care whether they're rappers or whatever uh, i really preach that whole thing of uh uh a songwriter has ideas. I think that's, that's, if that's what the public wants, they want original ideas and what better place to get that either consciously or unconsciously than, than books, you know? So yeah, you put me on the spot with my favorite all-time novel. I mean, I, I, that would be a tough one. It, it might be, it might be Heart of Darkness by, by Conrad. Um, but that whole, that era of, of, um, you know, uh, American literature, especially kind of uh, speaks to me. That's kind of the golden era for writers. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. I, I, my opinion with books and music is a good book is a good book, regardless of genre and a, and a good album or good music is good, regardless of genre. Do you feel the same way? Like you could take a, I don't know, a, uh, a Taylor Swift song and have Metallica play it, but the song holds up because it's a great song. You know where that came um, across to me was, um, and I, I've told I've told my students this is that I went to see a concert with um, with Dylan, 
and uh, Foo Fighters opened for them acoustically. And my son was, I took my son to the concert. He wanted to see Dylan. I wanted to see the Foo Fighters, which there's all it's kinds reversed. of reverse. Yeah. It's reversed. Yeah. Because I've seen Dylan before. And, and, uh, and the Foo Fighters um, acoustically, those songs hold up, man. Those, the, those are good songs, you know? So, I mean, you add the drums and you add all of that crap. Um, the, the, the wattage and the amplifiers and the sound system and all that and and that's quite the show for the foo fighters but at at the root of that these are good songs that you could play on an acoustic guitar and you would say oh that's a cool tune you know what i mean so i think that's what you and i encourage that when i when i'm teaching is to the kids is it's got to hold up with you singing it with a guitar you know like i know production will add a lot but if you're putting lipstick on a pig, you know, it, it's not going to be great. You want, you want to start with something good and then go from there, you know? Yeah. The Foo, Foo Fighters are so good acoustic that at one point they put out an acoustic album called Skin and Bones, which really showcased how, how talented they were and how good the underlying songs were that could hold up without, you know, the ear candy and all that extra production stuff. That was funny that night because Dylan was particularly bad. I mean, you can see Dylan some nights and he's he's pretty bad. And uh, he'd get to the chorus and my son would nudge me and he'd go, oh, that's what song it is. Because <laughs> he would just do other verses that he had written and it was bizarre, man. Yeah, so my son was a little let down with Dylan and I was kind of jazzed up here in Foo Fighters. Was it because Dylan's voice isn't holding up after these years or that wasn't just it? He's just an odd duck. You know, he just starts changing songs around. <laughs> you don't even recognize him. It's like, oh, OK. That's, I guess that's after all along the I guess after all these years. Yeah, maybe he's bored of playing. This yeah, I guess songs. bored. You know, he just writes new. He's writing new verses on his way over in the cab, you know. <laughs> So we're 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 both born and raised in Ottawa, which I think is awesome to to kind of talk about the the history of the Ottawa music scene and and building up this community and all that. How much do you think growing up in Ottawa shaped you as a musician and as a person? Um, well, as a musician, like growing up in Ottawa was different than growing up in Toronto. In Toronto. You know, it's a more cosmopolitan place. Uh, I mean, and and its influences, it's closer to the States. You had kind of an R&B thing, you know, happening there. You had other influences. Um, in Ottawa, I mean, you had country, which was everywhere you went around Ottawa, was it was country music because we're so close to the Ottawa Valley. And and the other thing that was, um, we kind of had this history of, of vocal groups, you know. And um, so there was a lot of... Um, when you put a band together, you always you'd always ask if the guy could sing. Whereas, you know, in 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 Toronto, if you look at all those great bands from the 60s in Toronto, they usually had the lead singer. Right. Whether that was a Mandela or any of those kind of groups. Right. There'd be the lead singer and then there would be the band. Whereas here, maybe it was the influence of, of the Beatles or the Beach Boys or or whoever. But th there was always some kind of vocal thing that you were looking for. You know, and that's what we were looking for when we put our first bands together. If if I met you at 12 years old, who would I be meeting? What was it? What was little Dick Cooper like at 12? Oh, I was a bit of a nerd. I was I, I was total nerd. I was really, really studious. You know, I was uh, I came first in grade eight. Uh, I came first in grade 12. Uh, I, it was all about it was all about trying to get an education. And, you know, we were we were pretty poor 
like my brother and I, if you're from Bell Street, if you're from Ottawa, we, we came from Bell Street and that's Chinatown now. And it's, it was a really, really poor neighborhood. We lived in a, in a, a four door row. And so your parents put you pay for you to go to university and helping you go to university and stuff. I mean, you're taking it seriously. You don't want to let them down, you know, either emotionally or financially. They're trying to help you get through. Having said that, part of it, my brother and I was always like, how the hell did we get off Bell Street? You know, <laughs> and, and uh, whether that was me getting an education or my brother wanting to be a rock star, uh, it was a very conscious effort to change the circumstances we were in. You know, very, very simple. My dad was a, in, after his songwriting thing failed, he took the lifelong sentence in the government and my mom worked for law laws. You know, we're, we're not fancy at all, you know? So, I mean, part of you is like, you want to change your circumstances, you know? So you mentioned that you were kind of nerdy, kind of studious. Uh, I, I actually have a quote that's coming up later where someone that knows you says, Dick is the most intelligent person I know. So someone, I, I fact-checked this stuff and that'll come up in a little bit. Um, so at 16, if you and I were friends and you invited me over to your house to listen to music, what albums would you be spinning? I see you have a big CD collection behind you, but way back at 16, what music would you be playing for me? Well, it... it 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 constantly changed because I educated myself, you know, um, it, it would certainly be the music of the day, um, which at, at 16 would be British Invasion stuff. But like, you got to picture this, uh, like where we lived, we there was like a little on the second floor, there was this little overhang off of my brother's um, bedroom, my brother and I, uh, uh, and and we'd sit out there. And we'd have the 45 spindle. Um, and you probably don't even know this. You're too young, but you would play it. And then one of us would have the guitar and the other guy would put his finger on the thing to stop it. And we go back and forth trying to learn the chords or trying to learn the. And I mean, now it's like you go on YouTube and some dude's going to show you how to play the tune. Well, we had no dude, you know, and we couldn't even go back and forth digitally. So you're, you're literally sitting there holding it, playing the thing back and forth, ruining the record, you know, as you're trying to figure out songs and stuff like that. But it was totally it was. Um, it, it was the, the the Beatles and the Dave Clark Five and and the Animals. It was it was only a little later that 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 my tastes t uh, broadened, and and part of that was when I got into college, like going to places like the Hebu in Ottawa, which was a, a famous coffee house, and and exposing myself to blues and exposing myself to jazz and and um, and and talking. I remember. Uh, uh, do you know who Amos Garrett is? Um, he, he played uh, in, in a band called the Dirty Shames. He, he's the guy that played guitar on Midnight in the Oasis, uh, Midnight at the Oasis uh, by Maria Muldor. And I remember him playing there and I remember going over to him and saying, I want to play guitar like you. And he says, well, dude, you got to start with the blues, right? I said, OK, um, I'm going to get a pencil. And he goes, OK. And that was my approach to it was like, he says, OK, you got to learn B.B. King. You got to learn our King. You got to learn these guys because that's the that's the foundation of uh, of rock is blues. And if you don't know any blues, it's just B.S., you know. And so then suddenly I'm buying I'm buying B.B. King albums and I'm, I'm I'm trying to approach it like that. So like there's no internet then right so how do you how do you get good at this stuff it's usually like somebody will talk to you or you'll bug somebody for some answers it was 
you know it was it, it was something like it was stuff like that you know so there's probably quite a few years between the time where you first started playing guitar and writing songs to the time where you're doing well as a band. Uh, in those years, did you have any regular jobs? Uh, anything that stands out that's either uh, funny or memorable? Any regular? Or were you normal like us, like the rest of us at Slave Away? No? All music? Uh, no, not really. Um, I remember doing like part-time jobs and I remember working for a moving company and I lasted like a day and they fired me. And it was just like, you I lifted one moving. couch and that was, yeah, like... I, I kept looking for lampshades to carry, you know, and they're like, <laughs> kid, you got to carry the other stuff too. And uh, yeah, I was, I, I really wanted to wind up in, in, a, in, in the creative world somewhere. And even if I wasn't sold on music and even after music, I got into other creative stuff. So it's, it's always been, I just never wanted to do other stuff than than what was creative, you know. I've been I've been really lucky. And how early on did you know you had something special to offer as a musician, as a guitarist, as a songwriter, and that maybe you could actually make a living uh, doing this? That this could be a career. It, it probably wasn't until our first single, because like you know, you write a lot of bad songs until you write a good one, you know, and. Uh, that's what drives me nuts about these kids now. I mean, they they're learning the process and they're posting stuff on on YouTube. And I'm going, dude, wait till you write something good. You know, like we're all going to write some terrible songs, me included. And um, so I wrote lots and lots of songs. And then um, um, we uh, we finally, uh, thanks to um, Les Emerson, we, we got a singles deal and. Um, our first record came out in 74, I think it was. And it was a decent song. It was, it was a good song. And I thought, you know, I mean, uh, uh, Les had just come off of uh, signs and, you know, number one song in the United States and we were pals and he wound up saying, um, come on down uh, to LA and we'll record here. So you're, you're thinking, okay, if Les thinks we're good. If, record you know what i mean it starts to go okay maybe we could do this for a living you know so it, it's it's getting a little bit of validation from 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 your peers and and and, and your mentors and and the early days less was uh uh was a, a big help to my brother and i for sure so final question about you growing up, and we'll dive into the cooper's cooper brothers uh so musicians are often told to get a good education, get a good job, play it safe, you know, having a career in the music industry, that's a pipe dream. Nobody makes it. Did you ever have to deal with that kind of resistance from family and friends? Uh, and if so, how did you overcome that? Well, like I said about my dad, um, I mean, he, so I'm the, I was the first one in our family to get a degree, you know, so I graduate university with a, with a degree in literature. I'm, accepted in to get my master's and and then my dad's thinking and my mom's thinking hey we're gonna have a lawyer we're gonna have a doctor we're gonna have something here and then i get thrown out and go on the road with my brother for the next 15 years so yeah there was a little bit of disappointment there but i i don't think i've ever stopped uh my education i i, I even though if we were on the road i'd bring books i would go to a bookstore i would i was I, I it's never really stopped for me and i i and it still hasn't to this day you know i i i think it's uh um I've, 
Aristotle, I think, said it was the, the only the only evil is ignorance and, and and the only good is knowledge. And I mean, I, I have kind of uh, I, I kind of taken that as a, a bit of a mantra. You know, I, I, I always try to improve myself no matter what. So let's dive into the formation of the Cooper brothers. Uh, at what point did you start jamming with your brother, Brian? Well, it was just after after I got turfed from university, that's, uh, I, uh, we started in earnest, uh, to, to play professionally. And, uh, so there were, uh, uh, several iterations of, of, of bands. Um, I don't know if you know about this, but, uh, my, my brother and I and Terry King, which was the nucleus of the Cooper brothers, we started, um, we played in a band called bolt upright in the erections, which was a, a really popular Ottawa band that did kind of a Shauna Na thing. And so we were the backup band for them. And um, so we did that for a couple of years and it was, it was very successful. I mean, and, and they wanted to basically step up a notch and, and go and tour and everything. And uh, that's when my brother and I and, uh, and Terry we couldn't take it anymore. I think we were turning into alcoholics having to play that stuff every night. And so that's kind of when we started to, we started to uh, uh, get serious about, well, we should do something with the original material and we should, you know what I mean? So that would be probably around uh, 73, you know? And when it was the nucleus of the original music with the Cooper brothers, did you guys from the start know it would be the Cooper brothers or did you think of other band names? First? We didn't even, we didn't even name ourselves the Cooper brothers it, it, to be perfectly honest. So we, that the song that we recorded, so we had a couple of singles out, but see back then you could get, you didn't, it wasn't an album's market. It was, it was a singles deal. So we had several singles come out, including the, 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 the first one was with less. And, um, he called us one day and we we kept arguing over a name, my brother and I and Terry. And he goes, guys, this, this, I get, this is going to get printed. It's The, the record is going to be manufactured. And he goes, okay, you're the Cooper brothers. Bye. And he hung up on us. And that was that. We were the Cooper brothers. Named by Les actually, Emerson. It was actually Les Emerson that, that thought of the name, which is pretty funny, you know. That's awesome. So that's uh, a five-man electrical band, right? Les yeah. Emerson? Yeah. Yeah. Legend. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That that sign single was so big. I mean, that that I believe it it sold over 7 million copies between the original and I, I believe there was a popular cover of it as well. Yeah, Tesla. Tesla. And then Fatboy Slim, uh, you know. Yeah, he referenced it too. Another, another, another big cover of it. Um, how did you end up in LA to record with Les? Well, we had sent him some demos and um, um, it, we had been pals. And uh, so he um, he called us and he, he says, I, I played your demos for Polydor and, and they dig it. So um, he, uh, he got us a little singles deal where we would do, I think it was four singles for them. And um, so the first one, uh, my brother and I go down to L.A. And here's a story for you. Um, so we we go to LA and um, we, uh, we, we, Les says, I'll put you guys up at my house. So you, you don't have to pay for a hotel. And he had this cool house in, in North Hollywood. Um, and uh, 
what I don't realize is that his wife is like crazy cat lady and she's got this house full of cats and I'm totally allergic to cats. And so I'm trying to kind of avoid going in the house. I'm kind of staying in the patio and stuff. And still the first night I'm there, I got this huge asthma attack and like really bad. And um, so they, they take me to the hospital and uh, so this is really good. Are you going to LA to record and the first night you're in the hospital? And it's so hard to sing the- when you're when you're all stuffed up too. Yeah. So we go into the, we go to the hospital and um, my brother and Les were already drinking and they're they're finding the whole thing funny. Um, and so I I uh, there's the whole thing of the different healthcare systems where I've got to show credit card. I don't have a credit card because I'm a musician and I'm like I'm paying. There's it's just comical. And then I go see the doctor, and so the doctor comes in and he's like, "This guy looks like he just came off the beach, right? He's got like blonde hair and he's like uh, he's like the dude." And he's saying, "So what's up, dude? What's, what's happening?" And and so I I tell him, and he goes, "Hey, so you're a musician? Oh, that's cool." And and so he thinks I'm past the pill stage. So he gives me a shot of adrenaline. Um, so that's like Pulp Fiction now. Um, he gives me a shot of adrenaline and says, how long am I going to be in town? I said, like five days. He goes, I better double up on that. And so he gives me another shot. He gives me a shot of adrenaline in each arm. And so this is how I record our first single, like just whacked out of my mind. And uh, Les likes, used to like to tell the story. And he said that on the way back to the house, I was running in front of the car on the freeway. You know, <laughs> it was like I was so wired. And so I slept in his yard. I slept by the pool the whole time I was there because I couldn't go in the house because of the cats. It's just it was anyways, that was uh, that was our first uh, our first big single. <laughs> did did you know before that that you were allergic to cats or it was only once you met crazy cat woman no, with 15 no, no. cats that uh, no no that i knew i knew if he would have told me that i would have got a hotel room but uh no i did not uh yeah no i had trouble with uh asthma for a while and it was the demos with les emerson that got you guys signed in 1978 to capricorn records is that correct no all right. Yeah. Give us the truth. We don't want any fake news here. No, so. no. So, <laughs> oh God. Um, so we, we, we had several singles out and um, I felt that it was all kind of like lateral movement. It was like, they were okay, but they weren't great. And I, I felt that, that we kind of had to sit down and try to figure it out. And, and an opportunity kind of presented itself because <clears throat> Um, this, this bar in, um, in Elmer, Quebec on, on the Quebec side was looking for, um, um, somebody to play for three months. Like a residency? Yeah. January, February, March, into April, actually almost four months. And, um, I said, look, we should just take this gig. And it was three nights a week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it might've been, it might've been, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, cause it was Quebec. And, um, I said, We'll we'll take the gig and we'll just rehearse seven days a week, and we'll get all the original material. I'll work on all the original material, and we'll get uh, we'll get an original set together. And at the end of the end of the four months, um, we'll we'll get industry people here uh, to 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 hear us. And um, um, it actually worked. <laughs> um, I mean, after the four months, you could not believe how tight we were. I mean, it was 
I've never been in a band since that was that tight as that band at that time, because we literally just practiced seven days a week and the harmonies were ridiculous. And so we had a, like a 45 minute set basically of original material and we wouldn't even play it at night. We'd play cover stuff at night. We, we were playing McCartney band on the run. We were playing, you know, 10 CC rubber bullets. Um, and then we were, we were practicing these songs and so uh, at the end of the four months, we uh, we invited a bunch of people down. We wound up getting a manager and uh, um, we we wound up um, doing some demos of those songs. And then the demos, uh, the new manager put them out there and they got turned down by everybody. So the, this would be Dream Never Dies, Rock and Roll Cowboys. All of those songs got turned down at the demo stage. And then he talked to a guy in Montreal that he knew, and that guy put up the money for the first album. And we went to Toronto, and that's when we recorded uh, the first album at Sounds Interchange in in Toronto. So we 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 no problem with that. With Sounds Interchange, it's a beautiful Westlake room, and we had Mike Jones uh, on engineer. He wound up working with everybody, Blue Rodeo, and everybody. Uh, but this was his first album in Canada. He had come over from England, and so we record the album, and then it gets turned down by everybody. So it got turned down at the demo stage, and then it got turned down after we recorded it by everybody. So we go back on the road and we're back on the road playing covers and for the next six months, seven months. And then um, I got a call. We're in Thunder Bay in January and I got a call from the our worst work. place on earth to be yeah. in January. Yeah. It's like, it's like Hoth in, in the star Wars, you know, it's like the, it's like the frozen planet. And uh, uh, so he says, you're not going to believe this. He says, we just got an offer well, on the record. And this is after six, seven months of just getting turned down by everybody. And I said, Oh yeah. Well, who? And he goes, Capricorn. I go, no way. And he says, yeah, you got a, you got an offer from uh and that was a, one of the ones we wanted the most to, to get a deal from. They had a lot of great Southern rock bands, didn't they? Yeah, and it was just kind of fit with us, you know, and, uh, you know, Marshall Tucker and all those guys, Delbert and Delbert McClinton, uh, you know, Elvin Bishop. And um, so we we come back from Thunder Bay uh, on the Monday, and then on the Tuesday, we've got another offer from CBS New York which was even better than the Capricorn offer, but they wanted just my brother and I, and they wanted, uh, they wanted to uh, redo the album. They wanted my brother and I to go move to New York and they wanted to redo the album with uh, put their artists on it, blah, blah, different producer, different session musicians. And yeah. Everything, you know? And I mean, and, you know, the, in all honesty, it was an appealing offer, but like Terry was like the third brother. There's no there was no way we would ever consider doing anything that didn't include Terry. And so that was that was kind of the deal breaker. And that's kind of why we went with Capricorn. But the, the CBS New York deal, I mean, you know, hindsight being 2020 and all that, I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe we would have been a lot more successful. Who knows? But you know, it was one of those forks in the road, and you 
that we we chose to go with Capricorn. Yeah, I mean, it, it's only now, uh, it's only now that you know what eventually would happen to Capricorn Records. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's uh there's the official origin story of the Capricorn yeah. Records uh, signing. Yeah. So that's good, good to know. Good to get that out there. And okay, well, here here's here's the little uh, uh, footnote to that. So when we finally meet the Capricorn people and I meet the guy who signed us, the guy who signed us was this guy, David Hersher, who had had come over from Warner Brothers and had done big signings. They they brought him over to Capricorn as the A&R guy. So here's how we got signed. He gets our tape and our lawyer had sent him the tape or our manager had sent the tape and he he hears it and he goes, hmm. It sounds fishy and what what they used to do is the a and r guys at the different labels would sometimes play tricks on each other and they would send them they would for example put the new springsteen album in a shitty box and call it something else and send it to the guy as a practical joke and then the guy would turn them down and then say you don't know anything you just turned down springsteen you idiot so he thought our album was the new Eagles album and that one of the A&R guys was just messing with him. So he sat on it for the six months. He heard it right away when, when we had sent it out with our lawyer, he sat on it for like six, seven months. And then finally, like a new Eagles thing came out and he goes, maybe that, hey, that's maybe not that, what I heard. That's not what I heard. He goes back and listens to us, calls us up and we get the offer the next day, you know, cause he was in love with it, but he just thought, he thought somebody was screwing with him, you know. That's funny. The uh, <laughs> the, the the story of of spending the four months in a residency in Quebec, that kind of proves the ten thousand hours um, theory of it takes that long to become a master at something, and it's it's you basically collapse time frames by playing every day for for four months. You, you developed the talent of the band instead of over a five year period. It's like you collapse those time frames, and it's kind of like the story of the Beatles, right? Where they were playing almost every day, several mm -hmm. sets a day, and they became the best live band on the planet. It's funny you mention that because I I tell that to my students. I, I'm a big fan of the Gladwell book, and and the fact that he spends a chapter on the Beatles and the Reaperbond and all that stuff is is the same thing. I mean, we I looked at it at that as as an opportunity, you know, and, and I thought. Guys, if nothing else, it's winter. We're not going to be killed on the road. Let's just look at this as an opportunity. And the money wasn't great, you know, but it was like, it really, it really was the turning point for us. You know, I, I'm not kidding you, Joel. This was like the tightest band on earth after four months. And I know people that saw us then and go, uh, uh, you guys were like ridiculous. And I said, yeah, we were ridiculous because we practiced every day for like four or five hours, you know especially with the harmonies and stuff like that, when you, that just doesn't happen, you know, that's, that's, that's practice. And... Yeah. When I, when I went back and listened to the entire Cooper brothers discography multiple times in preparation for this, uh, one of the things that really stood out is those harmonies. It's, you know, just a mat, you guys are a masterclass in harmonies and uh, to dive into those harmonies, I'd like to, to take some time to really talk about the five most popular Cooper Brothers songs online. So I went online, I looked at all the numbers and the five most popular Cooper Brothers songs, The Dream Never Dies, Know Her When I See Her, Rock and Roll Cowboys, uh, Show Some Emotion, 
and away from you. So are you okay if we dive into those five songs, talk sure. about maybe the writing of them or the recording sure. or feedback, any of that stuff. So uh, the dream never dies. So this is the band's most popular song on Spotify, over a hundred thousand plays. Why do you think people love that song so much? I know why I love it. Just curious what, what you think. Um, okay. Let me tell you how I wrote it. Um, I woke up with the chorus basically it was a gift from the gods, you know, as they say, it was like McCartney waking up with yesterday. Just, I woke up and I just wrote that down. Dream never dies, just a dreamer. And uh, I sat there with my guitar that morning and I had the chorus and it took me two years to write the verses. And the reason is because I thought if the chorus is, is that simple, I want to do something in the verses. I want to, I want to have a little, I want them to be a little bit, not, not, not lyrically, but musically. And that chord sequence in, in, in the verses of Dream Over Dies is, is very cool. And so many people can't figure out those chords because they're, they're kind of bizarre. And uh, it took me like two years to just sit there one day and just go, okay, here we go. So it, it it's a simple song, but it's not so simple uh, when, when you think about it in, in, in hindsight. And why people dig it, I think it's just universal stuff. I think it's just it 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 hits on a lot of subjects there that that, that are close to people's hearts. And I don't really know, to be honest with you. I mean, I've had people say the song got them through a, a nervous breakdown, or they they've said, you know, everybody has. And I don't ask them why they like the song. If they like the song, it's I think it's personal, you know. But it's obviously touched. It's touched a lot of people, you know. I think. I think maybe one of the reasons why people love that song so much is it hits on so many different fronts where it's not just a great song, but it's also catchy and it's inspiring and it has amazing harmonies. Like it, it has all these different things that are going for it. Do you think that has to do with it? Yeah. Um, I remember meeting um, Dan Aykroyd. Blues and Brothers. I, and I was with uh, a buddy of mine who knew Aykroyd and Aykroyd go, hey, this guy, this guy wrote Dream Never Dies. And uh, and Aykroyd goes, man, you wrote an anthem there, pal. And and it was cool that Aykroyd knew the song, but he, he called it an anthem, I think. In, and in some ways, it is kind of anthemic. You know what I mean? It's it's a very simple song that you can learn pretty quick. I mean, when we play, everybody sings along. You know, it's it's not it's you don't have to. It's not Kate Bush. You don't have to learn those lyrics. It's like it's simple, you know, and, and so it's 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 pretty easy for people to learn and to sing, you know. When, when you guys play live, is that the song that gets the biggest pop, the biggest reaction? Yeah, usually. Usually people know that song. Even, even if they don't know the band, they know that song, you know, because they've heard it on the radio or, you know, and they heard it in a bar or some other band playing it or something, you know. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely our most popular song. So we have a fan question that's sent in here. This is from Alicia C. Uh, and Alicia asks, what is the inspiration for The Dream Never Dies? It's one of my top five favorites. Ask him about Barbados for World Cup golf. So that's from Alicia. <laughs> I stayed There's a story here that I don't know about. A buddy of mine was in the World Cup of golf and we went down there and she was a friend of a friend and we wound up staying at her house. She's just lovely, lovely. She worked for the, the Canadian consulate at the time. And she put us up. We we had a lot of fun that week. Um, 
So the inspiration behind. I don't know if there really was inspiration, though, Jabal. It it's it was it kind of just came to me, you know. And uh, those those kind of unconscious gifts of the gods, you know, you you don't uh, question that stuff. You just you accept it, you know. So let's dive into "Know Her When I See Her." Man, this is such a a smooth song. I talked about the 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 band like over the discography it's like a master class in harmonies this is a great example of that um how early on did you guys know that harmonies would be a big part of your signature sound and do harmonies come easy to the band or is it something you guys really have to work on to perfect um it, no it came early it came early before we even put the band together we, we knew that was going to be part of it like once once we got once we decided we were going to do it once we did the uh the the residency at the Gatineau and and we were putting the band together we we kind of had this plan and one of it was a bit country uh Terry King who was the third brother he we said we need a pedal steel player you're gonna have to learn it and he went and learned it and we would do gigs without him he'd go to Nashville taking classes and stuff but Terry was a killer vocalist as well. And so the harmonies, I don't take any uh, any uh, bows for that at all. The harmonies all came from my brother and Terry. Um, uh, they, they, were, they totally did all the vocal arrangements. And I said, I don't want any part of it. You guys, that's your thing. You know, I'm going to worry about other stuff, the arrangements and the songs and everything like that. And that was kind of the division of labor that we that we kind of mapped out, you know. And um, those guys were they were huge fans of of Poco and uh, Flying Burrito Brothers and groups like that. So it was like they're, they're leaning more that way that than than Beach Boys and stuff like that. You know what I mean? But um so you're talking about Norman I see her. So Dream Never Dies, Rock and Roll Cowboys, all that stuff came from the first album. The second album we recorded in Miami. Okay, in 7980. And after the success of the of the of the first album they wanted us to record in Miami and and they flew me down in in advance. And uh, checked out a bunch of studios and um, the disco craze is going on then. And uh, Bee Gees are big and all that stuff. Uh, and for, uh, Clapton's recorded 461 Ocean Boulevard. And he's he's down the street of Criterion and the Bee Gees are there. So that's why they, they wanted us to be in that uh, milieu. So um, we go down there. I mean, I go down there and talk to Capricorn. And what I don't know is they're struggling they're on the verge of bankruptcy right and so my my marching orders from them is write some fucking hits so the first album we just recorded it and then we got a record deal so left to our own devices what you hear on that first album dream or dies rock and roll cowboys away from you all of that stuff old angel midnight that's us. That's the Cooper Brothers. The second album, not so much. The second album with Show Some Emotion, All I See Her and all that stuff was very much me writing with a gun to my head to write stuff that could get on the radio. So whether it's good or not, I'm not saying that, but it wasn't from the heart. Do you know what I mean? And, and so we're in the studio 
in Miami. And we were there for months because they said, we don't care how much this record costs. The last thing you want to say to a band is we don't care how much this costs because it'll cost a fortune because we'll stay there forever. It's 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 winter here. We're in Florida, you know, so it's like, oh, gee, the album's taking six months. And uh, so that album, you have to look at it in that light. Do you know what I mean? So the, the record company is saying, OK, we're going to send uh, Greg Allman over and we want Greg to play on a song. And so Greg Allman comes over and he's stoned and he doesn't play. And then they say, um, how did that work out? And we go, no, not good. Not good. Um, OK, what about uh, what about Chuck Lavelle? OK, Chuck Lavelle. So Chuck Lavelle comes over a whole other thing. Chuck's awesome. He winds up playing on a song. And then, and then we got this famous Cuban percussionist and. So it, it 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 got out of hand because they wanted this album to be a hit, right? And so we got away from what the kind of music we wanted to make. And so Nora When I See Her, the song you're talking about, comes out. It right away goes up the charts and in, in the States, and then it it's out for two or three weeks and Capricorn goes bankrupt. So they've got the album they want, but it's not really reflective of, of what we wanted. Do you know what I mean? So it's, and I think no matter what band you talk to, there's, there's, especially if you're dealing with big record labels, there's, it, it's tough because you're being told very much what to do. You know, and and a lot of these creative decisions are taken out of your hands. So it's it was uh, that was a tough one because if you listen to Nora when I see her and and show some emotion, I think both of them are great songs. But it's almost like I wrote them for somebody else. You know what I mean? Like we put our harmonies in it, but there's no pedal steel. There's no. Do you know what I mean? There's no. It's it's they're not country rock songs at all. And then if you if you look at the stuff we've done since then. Without Capricorn, it's all back to country rock stuff and very much from our heart, you know. So I just thought I would interject that. Um, and I know it's a bit of a tangent, but that that's how that that second album, a lot of people say, it sounds weird. You know, I always thought that was the Beach Boys that did no show some emotion, or I thought we thought it was so because it was us trying to please the record label to have a hit. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, I would say that's definitely not an ideal way of writing a record is, you know, essentially at, at gunpoint to write hits. It's it's hard to write a hit, period, especially yeah. if there's that kind of pressure, you know. Yeah, but the song Nor When I See Her. Uh, there was a, a story behind that because I was. I, I had, we were recording in a place where um it was besides being an audio facility, there was a video facility and there was a, a, a big commercial being shot in another part of the building. And it was like a, it was a national American ad for a, I think it was a car company or something. And it was, there was these girls all auditioning and they were all ridiculous looking, you know, for a national ad. And I, and as I went to the bathroom in this kind of common area, there was this girl crying and, uh, I said, are you all right? <laughs> and she said, uh, no, uh, no. And I said, oh, okay, I'm in there. Do you want to just come in? And so she came in and she was crying because 
she uh, felt that she was in no way as good looking as any of these other girls that were auditioning. Meanwhile, she's absolutely gorgeous. But it's it, it it was one of those things where I thought it's it's how you feel, it's how you see yourself, you know. And even if you're ten on ten, if if that's not how you see yourself, then that's not how you present yourself to the world. And 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 I just thought it was kind of a it was it really kind of hit me that day because I thought, well, this girl is it's 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 not what she sees in the mirror when she she you know what other people see, and she had no confidence, and it was just it was just so bizarre, and and so um um. Um, that's kind of like, that was the show some emotion moment for me. And then nor when I see her kind of came out of a similar, similar ter territory, you know, of, uh, of, um, they were both written around the same time, but, but again, I'm, I'm trying to write hits, you know? So it's better when you don't try to write hits. It's better when you try to, write something from the heart and a whole bunch of people um see that and 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 they connect with that that's that's when you're pleasing yourself and your audience you know the so. the, the the saxophone is such a big part of that song uh the sound of that song uh is there anything you can share about the sax player or um how you guys decided to include saxophone and so now now I'm thinking it's like everything's maybe the label that keeps saying to, no. to add something or have this. So which song? Know her when I see her. Or show so some... know, know her when I see her. Yeah, those songs blend in together for me because they were at the same time. I wrote them at the same time, and they both have saxophone in them, right? Okay. Know so her again, when I see her. Yeah, again, it, it's it's basically us trying to get on the radio, you know, because we didn't have a sax player in the band, you know. That sax player was from the Bee Gees. You know, the Bee Gees were recording down the street. So we used their their sax player, you know, and and so it's I don't know what to tell you. It, it's and I don't dislike the song. It's a great it's a, song. Yeah. It's a cool song again. It, but, it you know, was it a Cooper Brothers song? I don't know. We play it and the people dig it. And we kind of rock it up a bit on stage. <laughs> Well, let's talk about rock and roll cowboys. This is one that you claim ownership to, and they and they. Oh yeah, love. that's for sure. That's okay, so. cool. So <laughs> the the song starts with kind of that signature southern rock guitar sound, where you have uh, a guitar riff that's harmonized with another guitar. I'm curious how how do you get that sound? You start by playing with one guitar, a main riff, and then going through and figuring out the harmony. Uh, to play a second guitar. Do you know what yeah. I'm talking about? That Southern sound? Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's Dickie Betts stuff, you know, from, from the almonds and, uh, and uh, the outlaws and there's all those other bands did, did the two guitar thing. We opened for the, we opened for the outlaws one time in Atlanta and they had three guys. It was like, Oh my God, they played these incredible harmonies with three guys. Like we, we were laughing. We said, geez, we have a hard enough time with two of us, you know, but uh, um, I would do it on the record. And then I, when we did it live, Terry on the, on the pedal steel would play the other part. Right. So um, um, it was, uh, it's not that tough. You just start with the one line and you find the, the third or the fifth or the sixth, whatever, whatever works and sounds, sounds melodic, you know? Yeah. You mentioned Ricky pocket at the start of the interview, uh, the sheepdogs, they have a lot of that double and triple guitar that goes back as, as it's kind of like they're honoring the, the Southern rock stuff. Oh man. They remind me so much of Marshall Tucker. 
like uh and i know it's it's sincere and it's homage they're not ripping them off or anything they're just they're that's their natural thing is that but they they do remind me of marshall tucker a lot i uh i was out at their show at the nac a few months ago to support uh ricky and yeah man they're uh, they're a great live band uh, not only know. the guitar playing but again the vocals and the harmonies so we keep talking about the the amazing harmonies and and they they keep that part alive as well the, yeah. the harmonized voice well, a lot of the southern rock acts i mean marshall tucker had great harmonies you know even the almonds too that all of those guys had good harmonies too so so the uh the song has has a great great banjo playing great pedal steel guitar um how talented are terry king and john saunders playing on on that track well, Terry, there's no Cooper Brothers without Terry. It's, it's that simple. I mean, he really was, uh, he really was like a brother, you know, to, to, to both my brother and I. And, and uh, it was, uh, uh, he was such a huge part of the band. Uh, uh, he would play acoustic. He'd play bass in some songs. He learned the pedal steel. And he, he approached the, the, the pedal steel differently, you know, because he approached it more like a rock guy. So he had all kinds of pedals and he had distortion and all that stuff. And, and he would make all kinds of crazy sounds with, uh, with it. Um, so, um, yeah, he, he's the guy that probably we miss the most, you know, from the early days. I mean, you know, he, he left us way too soon and, uh, he, uh, uh, he was such a big, big part of the band vocally and instrumentally. And, and John saw the, the, the banjo player, we had asked a friend of ours, Mike O'Reilly to play on the record. And he goes, he called us and said, yeah, no, I heard the song. You need somebody better than me. And he sent that guy. So we literally met him that day and he played on the record. So we had thought, Mike was going to play who he was. Mike was a really good pal of ours. And uh, he says, no, he needs somebody better. So that this guy showed up and we went, Oh, okay. This guy is really good. <laughs> it's not often you meet a musician. That's that honest, right? Oh, you oh, should, yeah. you know, you, you should get yeah. someone else. You don't hear that too frequently. Yeah. Yeah. He, 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 he it turned out really well. He played just, he played a great part. And that's all. So let's talk about show some emotion. You've already talked a little bit about it when we talked about uh, the other song. Um, What's funny is you, you, you've mentioned the Beach Boys two or three times now, uh, and I actually had in my notes. So when I listened to that song, I, I wrote down, has an ethereal sound with the reverb on the vocals, with the sound of the keys, the style of back of vocals, with the strings. It's got kind of an old school Beach Boys vibe. Are you a fan of the Beach Boys? And if so, would you consider them an influence? So I actually had written down Beach Boys when I heard that song. Well, if you're in a vocal band, you, I mean, the Beach Boys are going to be part of the equation, you know, because... They're, they're, they were awesome. We opened for them a couple of years ago uh, at the Kempville Live um, show. And uh, it's it's what's left of the Beach Boys. Uh, so, it, you know, not not maybe what you might want them to be, but uh, they're still cool. But um, yeah, that I, I had so many people thought that song was the Beach Boys, uh, but it wasn't a conscious thing on our part. It was just, uh, like I say, that was more, if anything... To get on the radio at that particular moment in time, you wanted to sound like the Bee, Bee Gees more than, any, more than anybody. And so that that song with the record company kind of like pointing the gun at my head was was more like a more more like a Bee Gees song. 
And in reference to the the song title and the lyrics, have you ever been with with a woman that just never showed emotion and you didn't know where you stood in the relationship? No, it was more like um, I just thought it was kind of a cool a cool line, but but it was more this idea of the face you show to the world versus what you you know what, what's really there. And uh, I was. Uh, I think I was just trying to be clever there lyrically uh, with that, with that title, honestly, rock and roll cowboys. That's, that was us. That was like, that was a song about us. It was us. I wrote that song when we were out in Cavendish beach and we were broke and people looked at us like we were coming into their town to, to go after their daughters and steal their food. You know, it was like, that was a song right from the heart. That's, that's the distinction I guess I'm making between that first and second album. So the final song we'll dive into from your greatest hits, and then we'll dive into some of the newer music, the, the three new albums. Uh, so away from you, uh, Dick, this is baby making music. Are, are you are you a, a sucker for a good ballad or is it just me? Uh, somebody wrote one time that it was uh, it was the uh, the counter argument to uh, love the one you're with. You know, remember that song? Uh, that was a big at the time, right around the same time. And somebody said this is like the, the counter argument to that. Uh, it was just uh, being on the road and being homesick, you know. Um, um, it's it's basically a song about somebody who's away from their loved one and is trying to cope with it. And uh, um, away from you, the stars don't seem to shine as bright. It's just uh, pretty romantic, you know. Yeah, it is baby making, as you say. <laughs> I guess. There's man, there's such a good groove on this song. And one thing that really stood out to me was the the drums. So I wrote down the drums are great on this song, whether it's the laid back style that's really in the pocket, uh, the drum fill going into the chorus or the other little intricate things that he's doing. So do you remember the recording of of the drums yeah. for this song? Can you share anything about the player yeah. or the recording? Yeah, it was Glenn Bell, the original drummer for the Cooper Brothers that played on that. He's no longer with us, too. Um, he died a couple of years, three years ago. Uh, but yeah, that was right in his wheelhouse. That's all, you know, that was that was definitely right in his wheelhouse uh, to play. The the When we did our 40th um, uh, uh, at Centerpoint, uh, uh, do you know who Peter Ferdad is? He plays bass with Kim Mitchell. And uh, he was going to get up with us, and I and, and we we were trying to decide in advance. We added several guests. Kelly Lee, Kelly Lee sang "Show Some Emotion," um, which was. Very Did she cool. show some emotion while she, she performed? Yeah, it? I I almost showed too much emotion. <laughs> we're singing, crying during your yeah, own concert. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but Peter Fredette insisted on uh, singing. Uh, uh, away from you because he he loved that song so much and so so he sang it which was kind of cool hearing so many different so going into the chorus there's kind of this drum fill that happens and there's there's this very unique kind of tom sound where it it, it sounds like metallic or there's something I, do you know what I'm talking about I, I'm just wondering if if he used like a unique drum Ooh, kit or so. unique toms. I don't know. It's been so long. Man. Okay. I'm not really a drum guy. So yeah, it's it <laughs> what you're talking about. Yeah, there's the fill sounded there's a big setup to the chorus. Yeah. 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 The the fill, there's something yep. about the actual sound of the toms that to me it jumped out. Like the snare sounded like a normal snare, but it sounded like as he got up to the toms, it sounded 
different than other toms to me so that would random. probably be uh that would probably be mike jones the engineer man he was so good with the drums and yeah he, he had a different kind of background coming from england and stuff like that so he uh maybe that's why it sounded a little different you know so one thing that jumps out as I listen to your entire discography is that you guys know how to write great choruses. It's it's like you're consistent across all your songs that when it gets to the chorus, there's always a great payoff. And, I, you know, I, I think that's probably uh, very hard to do. Um, do. Do you remember the first time hearing your songs on on radio? So this probably goes back prior to those two uh major label albums you you mentioned you had four different d demos or or things recorded earlier that singles, got some radio yeah, we play. Had early, earlier singles yeah so what was it like hearing your songs on the radio did oh, some people pull uh, over their car what what oh, happened yeah. with you oh yeah it's all it's all like that i mean every musician is going to tell you the same thing it's just such a big thrill to hear it for the first time i remember sitting in my living room hearing it with sitting there with my wife and yeah um i you know it's funny it's, like it and it never gets old it's never it's to this day i hear it on the radio and i'm it's it's cool i remember once i woke up the guys i was driving and i was going back and forth between two stations at west in the middle of god only knows where <laughs> and it was on both stations and i woke the guys up i go hey we're on both stations listen to this <laughs> all the guys are like can we go back to sleep now i mean <laughs> it's like three in the morning yeah, yeah, that's that's too funny. Uh, so, so the three singles: "The Dream Never Dies," "Show Some Emotion," uh, "I'll Know Her When I See Her." So, those are the three that all charted on on the Billboard Hot 100. What thoughts, memories? Rock and Roll Cowboys did too. Okay, Dream Never right. Dies, Rock and Roll Cowboys, "Show Some Emotion." No, I don't think "Show Some Emotion." I think it was "Know Her When I See Her" when they went went. Uh, I don't know. I always thought it, no, it was "Dream Never Dies" and "Rock and Roll Cowboys" for sure off the first album. Um, and then Nora, when I see her, she also emotion charted here really well. It got a ton of airplay in Canada, like a ton. But by that point, Capricorn had gone belly up and we were, because we were released in Canada with uh, Polygram, they kept uh, promoting the album, you know? So, so what, uh, what thoughts, memories, emotions come to mind when you think of those three songs being hits on, on the radio, what comes to mind just now when you think back to that period of time where you had those hit singles in the U S yeah. exciting, you know, it was exciting. Um, show some emotion. I, I thought it was the song for that time. You know, and I I remember I told this to my son. So both my kids missed all this. So I had my kids later. And um, I remember being in the studio in Miami and uh, hearing the playback of Show Some Emotion. And so I remember sitting there by myself and it was just blaring. And I thought, I'm going to be so rich i don't what am i going to do with all that money right it because it's like i'm not really a very materialistic guy and i'm thinking i think i'm going to make a lot of money off this song and then capricorn goes belly up the song's never even released in the states and needless to say i don't make a lot of money and i'm telling this story to my son my my 15 16 year old son at the time when the best of came out and then my son turns to me and goes yeah but 
you could have turned into an asshole or something. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, that's exactly it. You never know what would have happened, you know? So the things happen for a reason. It, it, it All of the stuff that happened to us over our career, you, you just got to, every band's got stories, you know, you, as you probably well know now, I mean, every band's got stories about the, the, the it's a tough, tough business, man. So at the very peak of the band's single success with singles, at the very peak of the band's success with those two albums, what was your life like? Was it overwhelming? Was it not that crazy? Uh, It it was a little tough for me because I I was the only guy in the band that wrote. So there would be a lot of pressure on me to come up with songs and stuff like that. And uh, But it was good. I mean, you know people tell you, you know, you want a little bit of fame. You don't want too much, but you know, it's, I don't believe people that say, Oh, I don't want to be famous. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of fame when you can't go to your house, that's gotta be a horrible thing. But, but if people like your music, I mean, you get into this business because you want a bigger and bigger audience, you know? So if you get a bigger audience, you can't complain then. So, I mean, I, I didn't complain much, you know, I, I enjoyed it while it happened. I still get a kick out of it. If somebody goes out to be in a restaurant or something, Hey man, you want the Cooper brothers? I mean, it's, it's what's wrong with that, you know, as long as they're not annoying. So eventually the record label goes under, um, after a while there's a hiatus with the band you guys come back together and you release three albums between 2020 and 2010 and 2017 so in from the cold southbound and radio silence so in from the cold um hey wait a sec you're missing two albums right okay we got two more albums (laughs) so after after uh after the second album pitfalls of the ballroom uh there was all kinds of lawsuits and stuff like that we record another album and that label goes bankrupt right after we release it. Then we really, then we record a fourth album, which is never released. Mm-hmm. So we actually did four albums. So, um, and the fact you don't know that is pretty, <laughs> pretty normal. Most people don't know that we did these other two albums and in our best of we actually included a couple of songs from those albums just because people didn't know that. Cause again, cause of bankruptcies and all of the machinations of the music business, that's just what happened, you know? Yes. So I, I did know there was two other albums, but just, we only have 40 minutes left and I want to dive in. No, I, know, I don't want to talk about you, them I either. <laughs> I know you really want to talk about the three new ones, which is, I don't want to you know, where all. we're at with the band these days. So um, Colin Linden from Blackie and the Rodeo Kings Uh, He said, when I heard the songs from In the Cold, I thought they sounded timeless. They were brimming with ideas. They weren't trivial. And they they were musically and lyrically so well thought out. So it's Colin Linden. So he he had a big part to play with that album, In From the Cold. What what can you tell us about that album and Colin Linden? Well, um, I didn't mean to correct you there, by the way, Joel. No, that's okay. That's okay. (laughs) I just wanted to let you know. More bad stuff that happened before the good stuff happened. Hey, it's this is story time with Dick Cooper. You can you can chime in with any stories. You can take this wherever you want. Um, yeah. So 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 you think about it. I, I had been involved in 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 uh, when I left music. Uh, I I got involved in film and TV and video game business. I was creative director at a video gun company for ten years, and then uh, so what happened was the best of came out. 
And uh, when it was released, I was kind of, ironically, it was just around, right around the time where I was really tired of working in the video game business. I basically got into it because it was good money and uh, I, I, they offered me a great job and I got to travel and all that stuff. So, but I was really, really tired of it. The best of came out and um, I, I took a package to get out of the video game industry and I sat in my yard and I said to my brother, I said, wow, I was writing all these songs, you know, <laughs> I don't know why, just because I wasn't doing nine to five. I said, they're just coming out of my ass, you know? And uh, he says, well, do you want to do something? And I said, well, I, we, and in my mind, we had never really ended it the way we wanted to end it. it like they two labels in a row went bankrupt on us. So we didn't, it, we, it's not like we came to the end of it and said, okay, well, let's pack it in. It, it was other external forces that, that caused us to break up. Do you know what I mean? So I said, well, we could, let's, let's, let's see what happens, you know, but I hadn't written in a while. My brother hadn't sang in a while. So it's like, is this stuff any good? <laughs> and so Colin was one of the first guys we talked to. We had a friend of ours, Todd Littlefield, who, who uh, is, uh, was, was a good pal of mine. And he said, well, why don't you, he, he managed a bunch of bands. He managed Downchild and all these guys and he managed Colin or, or he was his agent. He says, why don't, why don't I hook you guys up with, uh, with Colin, see what he says. So we, um, we sent the songs to Colin and he, he flipped, he, he says, guys this is this stuff is great I, I don't care if you haven't played in 20 years it's so what these are these are good songs you know and um so uh he came here i think for for blues fest and um uh by that time we had put together uh more or less a band and um uh he came out to see us we got this gig set up while he was here and uh he said no i'm definitely interested let's do it he wanted to do it in nashville he didn't want us to use the band because the band had just started he said well we'll come back to ottawa and we'll finish it we'll we'll use some of your guys but i would really like to take you to nashville and work with uh with some of my guys down there and that's that's how that project developed he, he and, and that was such a such a trip uh Delbert McClinton came in and played on a track. He got, he got Jim Cuddy. He called Jim Cuddy and Cuddy sang on a song. And um, Terry King's favorite pedal steel player was this guy called Dan Dugmore. And we get to Nashville and, uh, and Colin says, I got Dan Dugmore. He's going to play on that song that he wrote for Terry. And so it was like, he just was always full of these surprises. He was just trying to make this such a great experience for us getting back into the business, you know, and uh, even approaching Chuck Lavelle again to, to play on the record. And Chuck, uh, Chuck thought it was such a cool idea. So here he is playing with the stones, making a zillion dollars. And he, he plays on this record. He wouldn't even take any money for it. He just thought it was cool that we were back together again, you know? So it was for us to come back into the business under those circumstances was, was just so amazing, man. It was just, it was just such a great experience making that record, you know? So in from the cold is the only album out of the three new ones that doesn't seem to be available on streaming sites. Is that more issues with record labels? Is there a reason for that? I'm working on it. I swear to God, I'm working okay. on it. <laughs> it's the only album I couldn't sink my teeth into in preparation. Yeah. So yeah, it's, and I'm, I'm, really proud. I'm really proud of that record too. And uh, that's, uh, that's a, a Spotify glitch. We've got, 
all of it separated and it was on spotify and somehow it got popped out anyways we're working on it so the next album is southbound in 2013 this was produced by a call-in but a different call-in this is Colin Cripps uh, from blue rodeo among other bands so my favorite songs on this album are border town and bridges uh, border town has this kind of old old western sound to it which is congruent with the lyric content so that's a great a great job with that can you talk a little bit about the recording of this album yeah, we recorded that at the bathhouse up in up in Kingston, the, the Tragically Hip studio, which is where Colin, especially at the time, was really doing a lot of stuff up there. And um, um, we had we had wanted to work with Colin because um, kind of right up our alley, you know, like playing with Blue Rodeo and just the Kathleen Edwards, all of that stuff. It was kind of like he was he kind of has all the same influences as us. And so yeah it was he's such a sweetheart of a of a guy he's just like a lovely guy and uh it was funny you know the very first night we're up at the uh this is a pretty funny story so my brother was wasn't quite sure of him and and he he, he brought in a couple of uh kind of expensive bottles of wine and after we'd done some recording we're sitting there my brother goes my brother goes I don't know what this guy's fancy Toronto guy, you know, and drinking his, his expensive wine and stuff like that. And, and I said, well, I don't know. He's, it seems like a good guy to me. Anyways, eight drinks later, um, he, he tells us how he's from this shitty neighborhood in Hamilton that sounded exactly like the street that my brother and I were brought up on here. And then by the morning we were like, my brother and him were the best friends in the world and then so it's funny you know you kind of judge people at first sight but Colin's very much uh same background as us both musically and just 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 his upbringing you know so I I had a Blue Rodeo drummer Glenn Milcham on the podcast a few months ago and when Blue Rodeo uh played Ottawa last summer uh Glenn hooked my mom and I up to some amazing VIP passes. We hung out with the band. I got a picture uh, w- with Colin as well. And I have to say, man, Colin on stage, that guy is shredding the guitar. Those guys are so talented. He's he's a great guitar player, man. He's also he's also just a lovely guy. He's he's you know, he's we really have become good friends over the years. Great guy. Do you have a, a favorite part of the recording process? So some people they like the songwriting the original writing of the song some people like jamming with the other musicians to flesh out those songs and those parts some people like physically being in the studios doing the recording that ends up being the album uh some people like sitting there with the mixing do you have a favorite part of the recording process um it's it sure is neat to see uh the song come to life you know and and I, I think it only comes to life when you're actually on the floor in the studio. Like it, it, it's one thing for me to sit here with an acoustic, or me and my brother and and some of the guys in the band to to to, to rehearse it and stuff. But when you press the old button there uh, in, in the studio, that's wow! It, it that that's pretty exciting, man. As a songwriter, you're seeing you're seeing it being born you know so I, I get a little tired in the in the in the mixing and the mastering and all that stuff it's like you know 8 db this and 14 db that no I, I that that doesn't interest me as much it, it's less creative more technical you know 
as a songwriter, do your songs come together in a specific order? So some people, there's no music, they just write lyrics and then they form a song around it. Some people, they're just always playing guitar. They come up with a cool part. They figure out the melody vocally and then the song is done, but you got to fit lyrics into those, those melodies. Do you, do you have a specific way your songs come together or is every song different? Yeah, every song's different. It's, it's like I've, some of them, like I, some of them take 10 minutes and some of them take 10 years. <laughs> I've had songs, honestly, God, it's funny you mentioned Border Town. It's taken, that song took me the longest to write of any song I've ever written. I kind of had that hook in my head, this, the, the lyric, and, and I could never get the right music for it. And so I would say that song probably took me like 15 years to write from the first time I had the idea till I finished it. And I know that sounds insane, but that's just the way it goes, you know, sometimes. And what's funny is the length of time that it takes, you know, short or long to write a song doesn't necessarily have any bearing on whether it's a great song or not. No, no, it doesn't. That's pretty, you would think I wrote that song in 20 minutes or something, but I obviously didn't. So for our listeners that play guitar, that are gearheads, can you, can you share some of the equipment you use that allow you to get your signature sound so i guess maybe a favorite guitar that you play maybe a favorite amp that you play through and then do you have any pedals that you use um yeah this I is have the a, gear question here a the gear, gear question. question um i i i've always used the 52 les paul which is uh uh go try to buy one <laughs> it's not that easy but it's right there <laughs> The gold uh, one, yeah. Yeah, the gold one. So it's a 52 gold top. And I've had that for forever, man. I've had it since uh, the very first record. And uh, the acoustic behind it, I've used it on every song. I've written every song on it. And I've got other gear that's over the warehouse and stuff. But um, those are, I don't want them out of my sight. They're kind of the ones I write on and everything like that, right? But uh, the pedals, uh, I, I mean... I don't know. They, they come in and out of fashion. You know, I, there's stuff I had back then. I got different ones now, but, uh, and they're all these boutique amps they're making now are just ridiculous. They're so good. You know, you have these little 20, 25 watt amps that are, I use a tax amp that, that are handmade in Toronto and, uh, Colin, Colin has, uh, Crips has helped me a lot with my gear. He, he is the man in this country as far as gear is concerned. So I'm, I'm lucky to know him. So whenever I, I do an interview with a guest who is in a band that is guitar heavy, I always ask this question. So there's a, a video game called Guitar Hero where people get a plastic guitar and they can right. rock out and it feels like you're playing real guitar to your favorite songs. If Guitar Hero came around tomorrow and said to the Cooper brothers, we need just one song to put into the new Guitar Hero video game that people can play along to, what what song do you provide to Guitar Hero? Maybe Rock and Roll Cowboys. That's pretty tough. <laughs> I still have trouble with playing that solo <laughs> on stage. Uh, yeah, that'd probably be the one I'd pick. Uh, and I'm very aware, working in the video game industry for a while, I'm very aware of Guitar Hero. <laughs> I've spent many a night uh, nerding out to Guitar Hero. And I actually, uh, I have two young nieces that have shown a love for video games as they get older. So I actually gave them, I had an Xbox 360 with a good, with a guitar hero guitar and all the guitar oh, wow. hero games. 
and I gave that uh, over to them. So to to help foster the next generation of oh, good members. uncle, good uncle, no kidding. Yes, yes, yes. So um, how has the Ottawa music scene changed and evolved over the years since when you were young and learning guitar all the way to today? Have you seen a shift at all? Um, well, I've kind of been in and out of it, you know, I mean, I was, I was, when, when the Cooper brothers were around, I wasn't really involved much in the local scene because we were out and touring and all that stuff. And then, um, after the band split up, I, I got into other things, but I've really become aware of, of the, of the, the local scene in the last, uh, last 10 years or so more than anything. Cause, um, and, and man, there's some serious people that uh, have come out of this town. We, we've mentioned a couple of them already, but um, they're um, people like Kelly Lee and, 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 and Kathleen Edwards. And, and uh, like you mentioned, the commotions, all, all of these people, there's, there's some serious talent in this town. And I'm, I'm lucky that I've been able to get involved with some of them. I, I really resisted um, co-writing for a long, long time. Um, cause I, I just, I don't know, for, for some reason I didn't, I didn't uh, warm up to it, but I've done some co-writing in the last, uh, in the last few years and, and uh, with some of these people, and it's been, it's been a really positive experience. So when I think of the most important artists that come from Ottawa, so most important artists and, and most popular, uh, here, here's my list. So Alanis Morissette, Paul Anka, Bruce Coburn, five-man electric band, Kathleen Edwards, Kelly Lee Evans, Colorado, Belly, Annihilator, Sue Foley, and the Cooper brothers. What does it mean to you when people include you on that list of most important artists from Ottawa? And am I missing anyone on that list? I thought I did a pretty good job there. I think there's a big relationship uh, between Belly and the Cooper brothers. Uh, it's like For belly, sure. Super belly, and then, yeah, yeah. belly and then beer bellies. It's ear uh, to the street. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, Sue Foley, all, all these people that you're naming are, are, are terrific. Uh, yeah. I mean, to get mentioned, you know, in the same breath as those people is, is an honor for sure. Thank you. You know. So we have a, a fan question here. This is from Sandy Freeman, uh, who asks, how does he keep his fingers nimble? So it's from Sandy Freeman. Uh, I know Sandy. Yeah, he's a good guy. Um, that's hard as you get older, man. It, it really is. And I've had problems with my hands. And uh, look at this right here. I, I actually have these things, which um, you they're they're bags and you can put them in the um in the microwave and uh, you can get them in any drugstore and uh, uh, you, you basically heat them up and then you, you wrap your hands around them. And I especially use these or I get the wax done on my hands because my dad suffered from this. And now my brother and I both have it badly that uh, you kind of get arthritis in your hands, which not good for a guitar player, you know? So um, yeah, that's, that's a really a good question. And it, as you get older, a lot of guitar players have these problems, you know, just to keep them loose and, you know. So that heating pad helps? Totally. It's It's got to do with heat. So if you could figure out a way, there's different, there's different kinds. That's not the only one that's available, but it definitely does. And I've actually had like stuff done on my hands. Like right before that gig you mentioned, the Blues Fest gig, I went and had uh, the uh, wax treatment on my hand the day before so that I could play better because uh, you just get really stiff, you know. 
So with that heating pad, is that something where you're heating and using it every day or before a gig you heat it and it seems before to be a gig. Okay. Yeah, I don't use it every day, but I mean, if it if it gets especially bad, but it's, I mean, it just comes with age. There's not much you can do about it. I've heard uh, Eric Clapton talk about the fact that his hands seem to be slowing down as he gets older and that he'll watch a video of himself in his prime and he's like, I, I cannot play that now. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of it. I think it's just... It's, there's not much you can do about it just life exactly. it'll get you <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah so let's dive into uh the the next album radio silence from 2017 so my favorite songs on the album radio silence there's gonna be rain and end of the day uh can you can you talk about this album this, i i love this album i thought this was a, this was a great album the recording itself sounded great the songs were solid uh lots of hooks it was a pleasant listen uh what what can you share with our listeners about this it, it was so coming back out of in from the cold kind of thing to play on words we 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 needed a producer because we hadn't we've been out of it for so long and so that's why colin linden was such a integral part of that and then colin linden and then i just felt on that album i i because I, I had produced earlier uh i just felt we didn't really need a producer i wanted to do it uh i just wanted to do it ourselves and uh, so we did the album. It's it's ironic. It was like our seventh album or eighth. It's the first one we recorded in Ottawa because we always tended to go places to record. And so we we recorded that album here at a place called uh, Studio uh, Audio Valley. And uh, guys like Colin played on it, but we actually uh, we produced it ourselves. And uh, yeah, I'm really proud of that album. I'm really proud of that album. And and uh, those songs you mentioned. I mean, Jeff absolutely kills that 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 song. Um, uh, there's going to be rain. It's just, just, it's one of my the best things I've ever written. And Radio Silence itself, the song is, uh, is, uh, yeah, that's definitely has such a great vibe to it. Yeah, it is, and, and that's Colin Linden. I mean, Colin Cripps playing guitar on that. He does the solo on that. He's he's a monster, man. Like he's he's so good. So I wouldn't be doing my homework if I didn't go out and get some kind words from Steve Foley, the recording engineer from, oh, from okay. uh, Audio Valley <laughs> Studio. So he's also worked with J. Cole, Flo Rida, Big Boy from Outcast, Chad Kroger, Carly Rae Jepsen, and the Cooper Brothers. So this is what Steve Foley had to say. So uh, my one of my solo albums way back in the day, this is, I don't know, 15 years ago, uh, he recorded the drums uh, for that album. So I have a history with Steve Foley. So okay. he says... Uh, Dick takes every part of music production and songwriting very seriously without creating an uncomfortable vibe in the studio. His sessions are fun and relaxed, but also meticulously organized. He shows up early with lyric sheets and charts printed because you can't trust the band to do that. There is always plenty of food and drink provided on sessions because even full-grown adult musicians can't pack a lunch. It's a rare talent to be able to seem totally relaxed and laid back while also pushing every musician to give their 110% best. He puts maximum effort into every song because he truly honors the craft and doesn't cut corners. It's inspiring. So that's from Steve Foley. Oh, wow. That's so nice. Well, I'm a huge fan of his too. So he's, he's awesome. I helped get him. Uh, I helped get him into Algonquin College and do some some work there because I, I keep singing his praises wherever I go. You know, so so he does it. some teaching there. Yeah, he was. He does some teaching there, and he's. Uh, yeah, he's. Wow, he's he's so talented. It's uh, nice to work with people like that. 
So the song, I'm Not Afraid, uh, when that came on for the first time, it made me want to get up and dance. When you play that live, do crowds seem to boogie to it? Or have you had a chance to play it live yet? Yeah, I mean, it's because it's got horns in it. We, we don't play it all the time, but uh, we, we certainly have played it with horns. And uh, it's... Uh, yeah, it's a it's a cool tune. Our our, our late piano player uh, Ed Bim, who died a couple of years ago, he wrote the horns on on the uh, Radio Silence album, and uh, he did a terrific job on that song. The, the horns are wicked. Yeah, it's a cool tune. The song "End of the Day" has uh, beautiful and intricate guitar parts. Do you do you remember the first time you came up with with that guitar work? Yeah, I think I played. I played acoustic on that, and then I, I think I, I used the uh, uh, the capo, and I, I did another part up, up high on it, you know? I can't remember, but I know I, I practiced that for a long time. <laughs> and I think Steve Foley was very, very patient with me. I think that's how we wound up with, uh, with a good track there. I think patience is a pretty important <laughs> quality to have as a recording yeah, engineer. Absolutely. Yeah. I, at one point I recorded uh, an album. It was only 18 minutes of music and it took like seven days of recording, like seven full days between the performances and the mixing and the editing and everything. So you got to be patient in there. Oh yeah. Big time, man. Do you, do you have an, an app or a hard drive that is just packed with song ideas, guitar ideas, lyric ideas, or do you keep everything on paper? It's on paper. It, and it's, it eventually winds up on the computer, but I just feel if you go on the computer too soon, it's kind of, then you think it's done, you know? So I have these stacks of uh, books and I write and uh, I have these crazy notes and, uh, and then eventually as they get more towards completion, I, I, I'll put them on the computer and they're, they're, they're a little bit more final then. Do you have a favorite Cooper Brothers song to play live? Is there oh, one when you look down at the set list? Is there ever just one song where when you get there, you're like, all right, here we go. This is the one. Um, yeah, off the off the end from the cold album, uh, there's a song called Gunshy, uh, which really rocks it. And we usually do it as the last song or, or as an encore song. And um it's just a fun song to play and it's got a great beat and, uh, and it's, it's a subject that I, uh, as near and dear to my heart, which is gun control and kind of like, a looking at looking askance at the, uh, at the, the, the country to our South there. So it's, uh, both lyrically and musically, it's, uh, it's a cool song that I look forward to playing for sure. So looking back at your entire career, it, it, are there any stories about, fans that were either really sweet or crazy or memorable any fan interactions that stand out over all these years oh god now you really put me on the spot um, signing body parts taking oh, yeah, pictures we've had, anything oh, yeah, we've that had stands that. out oh yeah we've had that <laughs> we were from the 70s right so that was that was a pretty common thing i i mean i had a i had a stalker there for a while that wasn't too too good so i mean Again, it's the it's it's the good and the bad of the business, you know. I mean, there's there's you get these devoted fans that are just lovely, and they they follow you. We still have them. We have Cooper Brother fans that have been with us since 
day one, man. And we just we play a concert and they're there and they're that's that's the that's the great part of it. And and then there's also the the negative part of it, if you get people that are become a little obsessed or something. And and then once you're on social media, you're kind of exposed, you know, and then it's like, uh oh, and then, you know, you get the, the odd Looney Tune. But that that's the that's the exception. Most most people are great, man. Most people are great. And you know what? We 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 are playing a kind of music that's 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 not very I don't know how to say this, but it's it's we're we're kind of the last of a dying breed in some ways, you know? It's not like you can't you, you I mean, whether it's Blackberry Smoke or whether it's whether it's the sheepdogs, whether there's there's not it's not like it was, you know. So if if you like a certain kind of music you kind of stick with it. You know what I mean? There's people that come out with their diehard fans for this music and they don't want it to end, you know? Do you, do you ever go back and listen to your own music? So some actors will never watch themselves in movies. Some authors will never read their own books. Some musicians never listen to their own music once it's recorded and released. I personally, every now and then go back and listen to my music. Uh, do you ever go and listen to your own music? No, no, and I, I never do. If How it, dare if it's you, sir? All that great radio. music. But well, the trouble is, is that if I'm working on something new, I'll listen to that over and over and over and over again. But so, and if you're making a record like Radio Silence, I listened to that album a thousand times when we were making it, or after we make it, and you're you're mixing it, and then you're master, you're trying to master it. So you you listen to it in your car over and over and over and over again. So it's it's like then you almost want to get on to the next project because you're losing your mind, you know? So it's, I think it's, uh, it's such a pleasant thing to hear it on the radio or, or, or if we're getting ready for a gig and I have to, you know, we're going to play these songs that I haven't played in a while. And then you play it, you go, Oh yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. I forgot we did that. Oh, that's neat. (laughs) So it's almost like you need a break from it for a while, you know? So I have a hypothetical question for you. So let's say in the distant future, in let's say 200 years, 500 years, a thousand years from now, when most of of popular music from today has been erased from public consciousness, if there could be just one Cooper Brothers song that stands the test of time, that sticks around all the way to that point, what song do you choose and why? So it doesn't have to be one of the band's most popular songs, but just one song you would you think best represents the band as a whole that could still be around. I mean, I think it's got to be "Dream Never Dies." I mean, it's 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 got to be because it's. I think the, the the intention behind that song was pretty noble, you know. And I think it was written from the heart, and I think that a lot of people dig it. So that that says something it's not just the spotify numbers i think it's just over the years it's the one that see people seem to like i mean who might argue with them you know you've you've mentioned a few times that you you teach at algonquin and you teach some amazing courses that have to do with with music with songwriting um with the music industry what is your favorite part of teaching and why do you think it's important that we we you know support and encourage the next generation of musicians um i I, i've always been drawn to teaching um uh, and i uh i think it's important that they're taught by people that that have done it you know and i I think that uh, for that reason um i i think i bring something to the table so 
I mean, it's it's not just it's just not an academic approach. It's 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 a life skill approach. And so, um, the the when when I teach, I'm I'm totally honest with the kids, and and I tell them what it's like to be on the road. I tell them what it's like how hard it is to write decent songs and the the how how tough a, a, it is to record and all of that stuff and how expensive it is and how there's easier ways to make money you know <laughs> and 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 I'm I, I think I I think I'm I'm a decent teacher because of 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 the fact that I, I'm totally honest with them and they can ask me anything whether it's in the class or or through an email or something like that and I think I I've been fairly successful as a teacher be, because I. Uh, uh, because I do that and I, I, I treat them as equals and I, and I, I try to be honest with them, you know, I don't think there's any other way to teach. So we, we have about 15 minutes left. So I'd like to dive into your career as a songwriter and a producer with other artists. Uh, so one album that's coming out soon. So Sherry Harding's new album, a million pieces, this is releasing on March 24th. Uh, you wrote the album and produced it. For our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with Sherry Harding, um, what what can they expect music-wise from this album? Uh, this is a career highlight for me because we recorded it in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And uh, I, I, I was able to, it was kind of a dream project because Sherry is a backup singer with, well, she was a backup singer. Now she's right up front with me and my brother. Um, so she's a, a great singer. And she just approached me during COVID and said, you know, I've always wanted to do an album. Is there any way you can write me some songs? And so the challenge was writing from a woman's perspective. And then um, through some circumstances where she had some backers, we didn't really have um, any kind of restrictions on, on where we did it and with who. And so I booked the studio I want with the musicians I want. And it was it, it's just been a dream project, man. I, I work with the Muscle Shoals uh, horn section who have played with like Elton John and people like that. And David Hood played bass and Kelvin Holly, who played with Little Richard, played guitar. So it was it was a bit of a dream project. So the songs came together and Sherry, Sherry rose to the occasion, man. It's uh, it is really a killer album. And I, I'm so proud of it. And it got me out of the my kind of like comfortable spot. And and it's more on the soul R&B kind of thing and even blues. So it's uh, it's really it it is uh, it, it it it's like one of the things I'm the most pleased with that, that I've ever done. So the first single, Don't Tell Me How I Feel, is already out on Spotify. So our listeners yeah. can head over there right now and give it a listen. Yeah. Cool. Uh here are my notes from, from listening to the song. The song is great, very groovy, wicked blues rock sound, strong vocals, tasty piano, guitar, and horn playing, fun guitar solo, wonderful chorus. Is that, is that a good description of the song? What do you think about the first single? Uh, I'm happy with the song, really happy with the song. It's, it's maybe my favorite song on the record. It's just it, like the, the counterpoint between her and the blues guitar. And then when those horns come in, man, uh, Charles Rose that did the horns is, is he's a genius, man. He's played with everybody from Paul McCartney to, I mean, he's played with everybody and, and he, the horn charts he did for this record were just killer. So the album comes out later this month, month, March 24th, the very next day is the CD release party in Ottawa. Uh, Saturday, March 25th at the Gladstone Theater. This is already sold out? Already yeah. sold out? Yeah, yeah. 
it sold out in like seven days. She she's still in shock over it. <laughs> she she was like, what? Because <laughs> well, she's you know she's gone from a backup singer to right out front, and this is her thing. And so it's it's a lot of it's happening pretty quickly for her. So she's so excited. And you'll be uh, getting up to perform a few songs with her. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna play a, a couple of tunes. Yeah, for sure. All right. And uh, there's there's no way to get into the show. I mean, if if we show up at, at your front door, we back up <laughs> the Brinks truck. Yeah. Uh, this this is past capacity. So this uh, is the best case scenario. This is what you want as an artist uh, yeah. and as a producer on an album. Uh, so I actually have some kind words from Sherry Harding herself here. So Sherry says, oh boy. as a musician and as a person, I love his heart and his brain. He genuinely cares about others his family, his friends, and his students. I've witnessed many kind acts that he would never tell you about. He has a sense of community that is rare these days. Dick is also the smartest person I know. So I told you that that quote was coming. <laughs> he is a brilliant songwriter, screenwriter, and novelist, and he continues to come up with fresh ideas. Still in the game and sought after as a collaborator by those who recognize his gifts. I feel proud and privileged to call him my friend. That's from Sherry Harding. Oh, that's sweet. She gets you right, right in the feels. Yeah, um, she's a sweetie. And another project you're working on, Jeff Rogers is releasing a solo album this year. This is co-written with you. Uh, this is also recorded in, in Alabama. And this is from back in 2020. But I guess all the craziness of the pandemic yeah, pushed this back. That, it was that plus he, he got a deal with Hirojo. So he was part of Hirojo. So COVID hit. And then when he signed with Hirojo, they couldn't release any solo stuff because he was, and I worked on that project too. I worked at that project. So um, it's, it's been postponed, but it's, it's, it's fantastic. Jeff is a crazy town. Jeff and, you know, I play in this band and I've got Jeff Rogers and Sherry on the same stage with me. And sometimes my brother and I joke, we're like literally the weakest people on the stage are me and you. We, we got the last name. So we got we're, our job security is, is OK. You know? the, the great musicians know that it's best to be the, the weakest link on stage. Oh, yeah. You know, I remember I remember hearing that Sting you know, apparently Sting is just incredible live and he has a talent of finding just like the greatest musicians on the planet where well, I've, I've they lift it. everything together. Everything I've seen up. Sting a couple of times, man. He's always got the guys, man. I saw him with Chris Body playing trumpet and Chris has got like 10 solo albums. Out, you know? so, so for our listeners, uh, you mentioned Hirojo. For our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with that project, that's a trio. What can you what can you tell them about Hirojo? Well, it was... Uh, J.W. Jones and Jeff got together with a drummer and then they went down to Memphis and won that international blues challenge. And so when they came back from that COVID hit, so they were kind of dormant for a while and then they got a record deal. And so um, I wrote um, with them. And so it, it's, it was a co-write situation. And I think I wrote nine songs with them that appeared on that record, but uh, they're terrific. Three people. Jeff sings and plays keyboards and plays bass with his feet. I mean, it's, he's stupid talent, you know? Yeah, he's crazy. So I have, I believe, the final quote uh, of the interview from J.W. Jones. Oh, that guy. That guy. So can you believe I got some kind words out of him? Uh, <laughs> had to twist his arm to say something nice. No, so uh, J.W. says... I met Dick Cooper through something called League of Rock, where I would coach bands. 
We immediately hit it off and have a similar sense of humor. I think I was bugging him uh, one day about his social media presence or something about modern promotion. And he said, why don't you go write a decent song? Uh, <laughs> and I said, actually, I am working on some songs at the moment. And immediately we bonded and started writing songs together. He definitely has an incredible way with words and lyrics. And we've written, written a lot of great songs together some of which will be on the new album coming out in May with production by our mutual friend, Gordy Johnson, who's a was a guest on the podcast recently. So that's from J.W. Jones. Yeah, that I, that's exactly what I said to him because he was on Facebook all the time. Why don't you get off Facebook, go write a decent song? That's how it started. That's a solid rebuttal. <laughs> solid rebuttal. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's, a good, he's a talented guy, man. He's a super guitar player. I have two more questions about producing. Uh, do you have any advice to our listeners that would like to have a career as a producer or would like to have a career as a songwriter? Uh, any advice for beginners that have that dream that you once had at the start? Uh, well, I, I, at the start, it's always tough, you know? I mean, and I, I, when I talk to my students, I just, you're going to write a lot of bad songs before you write a good song, but you, you got to write them. You, you just can't, you can't be waiting for inspiration. Like uh, inspiration is, uh, that's just an excuse not to write, you know, you just got to write and write and write, you know, it's just, uh, I really think at the start, you have to, you have to get in touch with that right side of your brain and let, leave that uh, uh, self-criticism, leave, leave, put, put that away. You, you, you just got to write and eventually you'll figure it out, you know, but, and listen to music, listen to the music in the, in the, in the kind of music that you want to play and you'll be influenced unconsciously and it, it'll eventually it'll happen, but you can't just sit there and wait for it. I, I, I see that a lot, you know, they're just, people are just waiting for sudden day they're going to figure it out and it's like well no do it just sit down and do it you know what would you say is your favorite part of producing others oh you, you know what when, you, when you're in that room man it's it's just magic it's it's just both working with jeff and uh working with sherry it, like the pressure's kind of off me. I'm not the artist, right? I'm, I've got a stake. I got a dog in the game, as they say, you know, um, because I've, I've, I've helped write the songs or whatever, but it's, uh, it's, it's just seeing the songs come to life. It's just so freaking exciting, man. It's like seeing your baby being born, you know, it's, it's, it's so exciting. And when everything goes right, you know, I mean, sometimes there'll be bad days, but when everything goes right, it's, it's the natural high of all natural highs, you know, you, you, you don't need drugs when that stuff's happening, you know, it's, it's the best. So you guys are, are well known for your charity work. Um, as a founding member of ringside for youth, you guys have raised $3.5 million. Why do you think it's important to give back if you're in a position to do so? Well, I think if you, if you do have a bit of success and you, you get a bit of a name, then that's the best thing you can do with that name is, 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 is help others. Uh, my brother and I have been doing stuff almost since the Cooper brothers started. I mean, back like this goes back 40, 50 years, almost. We've always tried to, 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 to use our name so that, that, that we could help raise money, especially for kids, you know, like we've been, we were involved with Chio for a long time. We were, we, we involved with, 
well that that's already you mentioned there that's 25 years you know it just ended a couple of years ago with covid um we we we've always believed that that was important for us and i think that was instilled in us um by our parents you know who who came from nothing and then once they you know they were we saw that kind of generosity that they had towards other people and i think it it just came from there but i always encourage other musicians to do it you know and i i encourage my own kids both my kids i got them involved in charity work when they were like in their teens i said this is part of who you should be you know so they both have continued with it you you've had a, a lengthy career in the music industry how do you keep this fun after all these years you, you know, you seem like you're still having a good time. How, how is this still fun? How are you not tired of this? It's not work. It's not work when you get up in the morning and it's it's fun. I mean, you know, it's uh, I don't look at it at work as all. It, teaching is a bit of work. <laughs> you got to prep those lessons and you, you got to deal with the kids. But the music business, if you really, really dig music, if you dig songwriting, then you wake up every day and you say, hey, I had an idea yesterday. I'm going to, you know, it, it's exciting. I guess it's the old adage that, it, it, it's not working if it's if you love what you do and and i love what i do so it isn't work so so at the podcast here we like to end with a rapid fire question section so i'm just gonna blast uh, i'm gonna blast through these questions insanely fast uh you can s spit out some short answers whatever comes to mind first are you ready for this rapid fire does, question does this section? have to make any sense at all or just no like where no. it's unconscious stuff what, it's freud it's yes okay. we, who knows what's about to come out here so <laughs> brace yourselves everybody all right. all right what would you be doing if you hadn't become a musician a uh, teacher did you ever get to a point where you seriously considered quitting the music industry forever yes <laughs> <laughs> still still uh still think about that all the time uh who would who would you we've already talked about this who would you say are your favorite artists or albums of all time you've mentioned a few of them i think the pretender the pretender by jackson brown and uh, a couple of the beatle albums uh certainly steely dan we mentioned james taylor yeah there's too many to mention if if you could pick musicians to form a super group who would your dream super group be so you're playing guitar, but you could have other guitarists with you too. So, oh man, so many of the guys I like aren't here anymore. You know, we just lost Jeff Beck. Oh my God, I love Jeff Beck. All right, we'll say living, living or dead. You can choose a super group. Another guitar player, Jeff Beck. I put David Hood on bass, and I'm so lucky to be able to play with him. Keyboard player, probably Chuck Lavelle. Uh, drummer, Bernard Purdy, just to go against the grain here. Um, um who else do i need i'll put sherry as a backup singer <laughs> with jeff that's a good gig for sherry <laughs> and uh what else do i need i need a lead singer um i don't know mike mcdonald there you go which musician or band were you the biggest fan of before performing with them live so was there a time where maybe the cooper brothers opened yeah. or went on after a band that you loved yeah a little feet yeah, we. I'm a huge Little Feet fan. We, we about five six years ago we got to open for them in Toronto, and it was uh, that's a funny story. We came off the stage, and some some of the guys from Little Feet were there, and as we came down off the stage, it was kind of like this ramp, and they were standing there, and it was like it's kind of intimidating because they're, they're your heroes, right? And they look at me and my brother, and they go, "Finally, an opening act that's as old as us." <laughs> that was pretty hilarious. <laughs> 
<laughs> What's the best live concert you've ever seen? So it doesn't have to do, it doesn't have to do with you guys being on the bill. Yeah. Uh, I think it was probably McCartney. Yeah. That uh, guy knows what he's doing. Yeah. He knows what he's doing. Uh, what this, this could take a, a full other two hour deep dive, but what would you change about the music industry? Oh God. Well, I mean, I, the, the number one thing would be if, if somehow somebody could wave a magic wand and we got back to the album thing, because we live in a singles market and I think that's just destroying the business. I mean, in my day, you, you got into the artist and you, you talk about your deep dive. I mean, that's how you do a deep dive is you listen to albums. You don't, you don't listen to the latest single that came out and click a button and there you have it on uh on uh, spotify you know i mean it's it's or, or itunes or whatever so it's like i don't know that the, the death of the album uh, i mean god almighty it, it'd be it'd be something if i mean most of the students i have they don't they've never bought albums they've they don't even you know what i mean probably five percent of the students i teach know what it's like to go and buy an album and get into the the history of the artist you know sad well what are the top misconceptions that people have about musicians? <laughs> that we're stupid. <laughs> that we're kind of vacuous and airheads. And yeah, I mean, some of us actually have a brain in our head. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, they think it's just a party city and, 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 that's just not not the case. I mean, maybe when you're younger and there you have that those initial moments of fame and stuff like that, it, it can be part of it. But no, it's uh, the the best guys in the world are the hardest working guys. Those are the guys that really it, it's all about hard work. Some of you guys are professionals out there. What what is the best advice you've ever received? Um, the best, best advice. I mean. I think it's 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 that it's it's that this is not an overnight thing it's it's a lifetime thing so you you can't you can't always you can't always be up there it's like if you like this and you're making a living at it you won you know what i mean it's it's not it's not whether you had the song in the top 10 or something are you in the business are you enjoying it are you making a living that should be enough to sustain you Right. So and 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 if you look at it kind of like that, it it just kind of changes the way you you look at the whole business. Right. Have you picked up any new hobbies during the pandemic? Do you start making pizza? Do you start uh, planting a garden? Anything changed during the pandemic? Any new hobbies? The, the weirdest thing about the pandemic is I suddenly just started writing like nuts, man. I I I, I did all of that writing for Jeff and for not Jeff, but for, uh, for, for JW and Sherry. And, and now I'm working with Ricky. I, I, I just wrote probably wrote 40 songs during the pandemic, which I didn't see that coming because a lot of guys got depressed and didn't write anything, you know? So I had this really creative burst. So that's kind of cool. Do you have a million dollar idea that you're sitting on? A couple. Yeah. I have two screenplays I've written that I, I cannot convince producers that they should uh, produce, but I'm, I'm still working on it. If you could sit down for a conversation with anyone living or dead, who would it be? Yeah. Like I say, my, my heroes tend to not be musical. My, my, my heroes tend to be literary. So um, it, it, you know, 
it might be Fitzgerald or it might be uh, Hemingway or it might be one of those guys, you know, like uh, uh, I, I think uh, I think it would be from the literary world. They, they'd probably make for a better conversation. Who knows? Uh, what What's your biggest fear? Biggest fear? Uh, nine to five, probably. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh that's the reality for most people so that's funny uh what what are things outside of music that bring you joy yeah reading uh reading is a big part of it um I, I play tennis too and uh, uh tennis is, is such a great uh relief from uh, all of the stress and uh i've been playing it for years and uh it's uh when you're looking at that little yellow ball coming at you, you can't think of anything else. So it, it really is a, is, is an awesome way to get away from things. And uh, it's probably the, the, the biggest passion I have other than, than in here with uh, music and writing. So this is the final question from the rapid fire section. Uh, let's say you've been wrongfully convicted and you find yourself on death row. Obviously you didn't do it, but you get one final death row. Who did I kill? Who did I kill? This is all speculative. The music business. Most likely. Yes. So (laughs) final death row meal, you can add a drink, you can add a dessert. It's your final meal. What do you pick? Oh God. I get hungry every time people answer this. Probably Mexican. Yeah, like what I, I, tacos, quesadillas? What are we talking about here? Yeah, it it'd be some it'd be some Mexican uh, feast that I would I would ask them. To, yeah, that's kind of like my I I have I haven't had red meat in uh, in twenty five years, so uh, I I'm, I've got kind of a funny uh, constitution there. Um, so uh, I I'm not I don't eat red meat, so it would be a, a chicken dish or a fish dish. But I really always go to Mexican man ever since uh, a, a long time, and uh, I'd have there'd be some white wine in there for sure, uh, expensive white wine as opposed to the stuff I drink. Uh, I'd be drinking you can Colin Cripps, Colin Cripps white wine instead of uh, my crappy stuff. You'd call in a favor one time from Colin yeah, Cripps, exactly. All right. So final, final handful of so questions. That was the final question. That was the final rapid fire. Oh, question. I see. I see. So we, we have, we're going to get real deep here. This is the final oh, handful oh. of deep, harder, more difficult questions. Uh, you know, we want to, we want to leave a nice impression on our listeners right at the end. So uh, okay. looking forward to the rest of 2023, do you have a vision for how you'd like the year to play out? And have you set any goals maybe that you're working towards over the year? Not everyone sets goals, but it's a, a good question. Yeah, I um, um, I, I want to see Sherry have some success. Um, um, like a, she's, she's just a, a lovely person. And uh, um, to see her get a chance at, uh, at, at getting an audience, that that's important to me. I want to see Jeff have some success on his own. He deserves it. You know, uh, both those people are are close to me and uh, I think they, they really deserve a shot at it. And uh, I have some, um, uh, most of my goals have to do with writing. Um, like I say, I, I, I wrote a screenplay. I'm in the middle of finishing a screenplay that, that I wrote about uh, uh, and it's got a music component and I'm just starting to pitch it to people. And um, if, uh, if I could get that, made into a movie that would be awesome and i've going to spend a whole bunch of time uh on that so we do we do something on the podcast where we have the current guest 
provide a question of the podcast that I'm going to ask the next guest. So without knowing who it is, what they do, male, female, age, you just provide a question. So the question from the last interview for you is from three-time Grammy award-winning producer, David Bottrell. This guy's worked with Peter Gabriel and King Crimson and Tool. His question's a little strange. I don't know if you can answer this. Have you ever lost time at an art gallery? And if so, which gallery and in which city was your favorite? That's from David Bottrell. Oh, I wow. wouldn't be able to answer that because I haven't really been to one. But maybe you, you know, you seem like you're educated and you That's like the arts. so funny, man, because uh, wherever I go, I head for the art gallery. boy, This question is meant for you. <laughs> it's totally. And you know what? It's, it's ironic because there's a great art gallery in Nashville of all places. And and I remember the last time I was in Nashville, I went over there uh, and I, I totally lost time there because it was this incredible exhibit. And I was in there for hours and I thought, I can't buy, I can't believe. And it's an, it's a, 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 like a, a deco kind of building from the twenties. It's the building itself is gorgeous. And I said, I can't believe that I'm in Nashville at this art gallery. The last thing most people want to do in Nashville is go to an art gallery. It's the first museum and it's, it's the, isn't that funny, man? <laughs> so there you go. There you go. You know, what's funny, actually, is I had uh, Winter Sleep's drummer, Lowell, who's now with Billy Talent as well. When he was on, he asked for the next guest without knowing who it is, what's your favorite plant? And I'm thinking, what if I'm asking like a metal, you know, a metal vocalist? It's just a weird combo. And my next guest ended up being Jill Zimmerman, who's an award-winning um recording engineer and it turned out that she was massively into plants like it was the perfect question for that guest oh, wow. this, keep, this keeps happening so in that spirit can you off the top of your head provide a question for our next guest it could be funny it could be memorable it could be inspiring anything come to mind okay uh what was the first record you ever bought all right first record bought now that you bought not that, that you heard that you not that you streamed that. Yeah, because that can be embarrassing. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so schedules do change, change, but I believe the next guest will be uh, Suave Pure, who's the drummer for the gold-selling band Il Scarlet, the uh, the um, the ska band Il Scarlet. So uh, it should be for him. He's a big lover of music, so that's a great question for him. Uh, final couple of questions. When you look back on your life and career, what are you most proud of and most grateful for? Um, I, I think I um, you have to look at it kind of like a body of work, you know. I mean, and so it's it's I've written like two or three hundred songs. I've I've published a novel. I've got another novel that that's almost finished. I, I've I've helped other people write. I've I've taught all these things. I. I I did 50 video games that I have my credits on and I've worked on TV shows. So it's 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 that. It's you you look at this body of work and I've somehow managed to dodge um uh, a job that I hated, you know. I I I've somehow managed. My whole life has always been about I wanted to stay in some creative sphere, whatever the hell that was. And so I, I, and I think somehow, I don't even know how I've managed to survive financially and stay, stay creative all these years. 
And uh, most, most, so that's most proud of, uh, what are you most grateful for? Is it the same thing? Just you're so grateful you haven't had to work that nine to five? Pretty much grateful that I've had the opportunity, you know, that I've had the opportunity to do that because, you know, and whether it's your wife helping you or whether your family or whether the circumstances are just luck or like I've been able to do that. I've been somehow grateful that I haven't had to totally abandon my dreams, you know? Final question. If you could go back in time and you could sit down next to your 10 year old self and you could whisper words of advice into cute little, cute, cute little Dick Cooper's ear, what advice do you provide 10 year old Dick Cooper uh, to help him navigate the human condition to navigate this life? Okay. When you get to be about 40 by Microsoft. That is good financial advice. <laughs> That's all he needs. As far as life advice, just follow your heart, man. Just, uh, just whatever that is, wherever you, wherever you feel like you should go. Don't, don't listen to other people. Like, uh, there's always that voice inside you that that is the honest voice that tells you what you should be doing, and so you just got to try to make that happen. You know. So where can our listeners find you online if they want to uh, stay in touch, if they want to be in the loop with what's going on, whether there's new music or a live show? Um, is there a website or social media yep. pages? Yeah. Uh, Cooperbrothersband.com. Um, and then there's uh, there's a Facebook page for Cooper Brothers. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, um, most of the people I've talked about are on Facebook. Um, so, yeah, I'm not that hard to find, you know. Is, is there anything that you'd like to say to the fans that have been with you over all these years? Any final words? For oh, well, just thank you. Thank you for, for, for hanging with us. Cause I, I think it was, I think they ultimately, I think it's been cool for them to see, cause we were, we were dead in the water, you know, like we, we packed it in for a number of years. And then when we came back, somehow those people just found us again. And, uh, um, they, uh, and the large, large part of that is because of social media and, um, they come out to our concerts and they support us and they, they buy the CDs or whatever, you know, and they, uh, so that, that allows us to, to get out there and keep making music. So as we wrap up, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for your lifelong pursuit of mastery as a guitarist, as a songwriter, uh, as a producer. Uh, I, I want to acknowledge you for, you know, a career's worth of timeless music that's the soundtrack to many people's lives. I mentioned my dad's been listening to you forever. And, uh, you know, it, it makes him happy, which makes me happy. So thank you for that. I want to thank you for being a great ambassador for Ottawa, my hometown. You helped make this place, uh, you know, a better place to live. I want to thank you for all your charity work. It's very important. And you, you show us what is possible as someone that has found success to actually give back to, to others. And last but not least, I want to thank you for sitting down with me for the last two plus hours, uh, answering all my ridiculous questions. It helped me to gain more insight into the band, have a, a newfound appreciation for all the music. So uh, Dick, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I, I really had fun. You're very welcome. So to our listeners, uh, to the Dick Cooper fans, to the Cooper Brothers fans, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, like, comment, and share. What I want to know is who would you like me to sit down with next for a two-hour deep dive interview? 
You can let me know by reaching out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Joel Martin Mastery. Joel is J-O-E-L. And you can find me on Twitter and Snapchat at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message and I'll see you on the next episode.